When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, what's going on? Josh Wiggler here with another episode of Down the Hatch. This one talking about the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. It's a really heavy episode of Lost. It deals with depression and anxiety and mental health and suicide. As a result, this is a pretty heavy episode of Down the Hatch. Our conversations match the content of the episode. So I want to give you that warning right out the gate. It's a heavier episode of the podcast. We definitely still talk about Saul the Drillman and stuff like that. But the conversation definitely gets heavy and it definitely gets personal. So I wanted to make sure you knew all of that so you can be in the right place to listen to the podcast. When you're in that place, when you're ready to listen, we hope you enjoy the show. We found someone. A man. What? Roxanne was scouting just south of here and he was just standing in the water. He's wearing a suit. Nobody recognizes him? No, whoever he is, he didn't come with us. And how do we know he isn't one of the ones who disappeared? He's not. And how do you know? Because he wasn't on the plane. What did this man have to say? You can ask him yourself. Hello. Hello. My name is Caesar. What's yours? My name is John Locke. It's the Lost Rewatch Podcast here on Post Show Recaps, talking Season 5, Episode 7, The Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. Josh Wiggler, I'm joined here by Mike Bloom. Mike, how you doing? Jeremy Bentham! (laughs) I've been waiting so long. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a hit from the great band Pearl Station Jam. Pearl Station Jam. Wow. With a little bit of a Lindelof to guide us into talking about the life and death of Jeremy Bentham on the very off chance 
you listened to this pod, you just like turned this podcast on <laughs> and you're like, uh, oh, it's a lost podcast. I'm watching the show for the first time. I just watched this episode. Like, Saul, I, is that you? It, it's me. I'm, I, you guys keep talking about it. My fans keep telling me on Twitter that I should go and check out the show. And my son, no, like on my own app, it's called Driller. <laughs> and my son, Saul Jr., showed me how to download it on my Overchat as uh, the application on the phone. Uh, so I thought I'd listen. You guys are pretty funny. Um, in case, like, you just want, like, this is just the spoiler buffer, because, like, what we'll say is, like, such a huge spoiler. Just, like, I don't want that on my conscience. <laughs> I really don't. Um, this is this podcast, we do it for people who've seen Lost before or otherwise don't care and just, like, want to hear about Lost. Uh, so if you are watching for the first time, get out of here right now. I'm going to give you five seconds. I'll do a five-second countdown. This is this mm. is it. You ready? Five, four, three, two, one. John Locke is dead. John Locke is dead. System John failure. Locke is dead. System John failure. Locke is dead. System he's failure. Dead. He's dead. John Locke is dead. He's not coming back. The show is going to make you think that he's coming back, but he's not. This. That's it. John Locke is literally dead. We won't see actual John Locke again until we go to like heaven or wherever the hell we're going. Uh, John Locke is dead, and this is the episode where it happens. He has ceased to be. This is essentially one long parrot sketch, right? Where Lindelof and Cuse are like, no, he's actually alive. It's like, no, no, no. You sold me a dead John Locke, mm. and he is a dead John Locke. This is just a spirit embodying him. Pretty bird. Pretty bird. Yeah. Uh, John. <laughs> are, we, are we the blind kid from Dumb and Dumber? Is that what you're implying? John Locke is dead as of this episode uh, that comes about halfway into season five, the life and death of Jeremy Bentham, an episode that I'm tempted to call controversial, but I, I don't I don't know. Is that accurate? Like I don't I I guess mm. I don't know. Is this an episode that is like widely beloved? Is it an episode that's like widely viewed as maybe a little overrated? Is it is it so overrated that it's underrated? Like I think like <laughs> it's a it's a it's a complicated episode. They are doing a lot in this one to get you um to like to like get you through this twist at the end of season 4 that Locke was in the coffin you know that Locke is going to die you don't know how um and you know we know Locke leaves the island back in episode 5 and we don't know how he is going to get from like that sort of hero's journey to winding up in the coffin and uh rather than letting you really sweat that out for a while the show gives you two episodes after that, the death of John Locke. Um, in an episode that really, I think, you know, it's called The Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. Uh, that is, uh, you know, he's going to have this alias generated in this episode, and he is going to die under that name. But I think also it, it really is a microcosm of John Locke's entire life in this episode. Uh, so I think that it, it fits there. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure, Mike, I think like it's, it's a tough one. Uh, it's a, it's a really, mm -hmm. this is a really tricky episode to negotiate. I think it was in the real time. I think it is even all these years later, because while it's the death of John Locke, it is also his apparent rebirth, even though yeah. people on the rewatch know that like, no, that's the smoke monster, uh, that's framing this episode. Yeah, so it's a complicated question because I have my own personal associations with this episode that I think may deviate a bit from the popular consensus. I do think when you look upon this episode as like 
the final lap for John Locke in this plane of existence. I do think it plays better. I think there's still stuff to nitpick at. I think uh, let's take your criticisms about the timeline for Meet Kevin Johnson and sort of shunt it off here onto the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. I'm sure we'll get into it, but there is certainly some complications there as well with how we saw everything with the flash forwards and how that times out. But I think for me, look, I'm I'm going to be cards up right here to start off the podcast. You don't love I, it. I I don't enjoy this episode. Yeah. I never did. And that's that's a Mike thing. That's not a Lost thing. Because here's the thing. In my opinion, this is the saddest episode of Lost. Yeah, it's upsetting. None. It's really it upsetting. Is, it, is a, it is a pit of despair filled with bodies where, like you said, it is a microcosm of John Locke's life off the island particularly, which is just, you know, in pursuit of a goal that he thinks isn't there, you know, being accused of being someone that he's not, constant rejection, being told he's not loved by anyone or loves anyone. And I will admit, you know, I always had an issue watching this episode just because of the headspace it, it put me in, and it wasn't until this most recent rewatch that I realized why it does that for me is because, Josh, this is a really interesting look at depression. Uh, and I am someone who has been upfront about my my battles with depression, and I'll continue to be upfront about it in this podcast. This Watching what Locke undergoes here was like a very stark reminder to me of when i was in a much worse place yeah to to be frank uh when i was suicidal yeah. and when i had those types of thoughts existing in my head much more frequently uh, you know they they come and go uh, more seldom sometimes but they're still sort of always there it's just a matter of managing your demons if you were and i did not like that show putting me back in that headspace. Uh, in fact, I have been in a really shitty headspace the past couple days having after watched watching it. this episode. Ha- after having watched it, just because it's something that that put me back there, that put me not necessarily like in the space of John Locke, but again, to be candid, some of the things that like Kate and Jack say to John Locke, you say like, "Oh my god, how mean, how like I don't know, just scathing those remarks are." Yeah, and I'm like, I can remember a time when I would tell myself those things. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's like a really uh, again, like it's it's my own it's my own issue. So I do not begrudge anyone whatsoever for thinking this is an incredibly good episode of Lost. There are a lot of people who do. I, I absolutely honor that. But uh, you always say, Josh, Lost meets you where you are. Mm-hmm. And Lost kind of met me at like a really shitty point <laughs> yeah. right now upon watching this episode. So that's my own personal reason for not being a huge fan. There's also some other some plot points that either get introduced or get left hanging that I've I've sort of had a problem with that we can certainly get into. But I think for me, the issue I've more had with it is more of a personal idea of like the emotion it leaves me with. And there's a reason why I keep saying that Lost was the very first network drama that I got into is because for quite some time, as someone with undiagnosed anxiety and depression, I could not watch shows that made me feel bad, that made me feel bad for the characters because it would just make me spiral, for lack of a better term. Uh, So, you know, I'm going to stop talking now so that people stop saying, like, stop talking about yourself, start talking about Lost, Dance Monkey Dance. Uh, But that's my own personal connection to this episode. There is a connection, 
but it is one that unfortunately I think takes me back to a place I'm not too happy to revisit. Yeah, I totally understand that, and I I, I think I speak on behalf of, of many of the the people in the audience. Like I'm I'm just uh, thank you for your courage and in, in talking about your own struggles as it as it connects to this show. I think that this is a really triggering episode of the show. Uh, I think like uh, you know we'll talk about the themes of John Locke throughout our time for the rest of Down the Hatch. Like if you feel like you need to sit this one out, I think that that's totally fine. It's a really upsetting episode, uh, and I think like there's it's it's hard if not impossible to like have like a big conversation about it without like getting into some of the subject matter that it covers, including the fact that um, John attempts to take his own life uh, and then is subsequently immediately murdered uh, by Benjamin Linus. Uh, and like the, the trip to get there is really brutal for him. Uh, like he is, he is, it just really struck me too on this rewatch. It's just like, Gosh, some of the things that he hears, some of the things that he weathers from some of these people, uh, uh, Kate and Jack specifically, is just so harsh. Yeah. Uh, really, really, really rough. Um, so if this is just too much, you know, we'll, we're, we're here. We're always here every single week. Uh, feel free to, to move along. We'll also, I'm sure, have our Salt of Drillman moments in this one. <laughs> yeah, listen, there's a reason well. why I opened up with a Pearl Jam parody as well. Yeah, we're, I think we're going to try to keep it light amidst everything going on because there's still a lot of wackadoo stuff going on. Like, welcome back, taller Walt. Yeah, uh, for instance. For sure. But I, I do also want to say that I think, like, um, I think you're you're putting too much on yourself when you say that it's like exclusively a Mike thing that like you're not like you know this episode is like not your favorite. I think that there are some Jeremy Bentham things and some lost things that make this episode not quite as good as it could be. Uh, whether yeah. it's whether it's timeline wonkiness or if there's like a little bit of a rushed capacity to it, or dare I say it, I really do think once again a timing issue in terms of its placement in the season. <laughs> pat, 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 pat on but, the back there for Mr. Like, Josh Wexler. But like very, very genuinely, I think that they like, there is this, there is this pressure that um, the lost team feels, whether it is internal or if it's like ABC, there's like, you got to give them John Locke faster. You know, Saul Drillman is now the president. <laughs> they, lo- they love the John Locke They character. love John Locke. <laughs> they love him. They, you can't just keep him away for all this time. Um, that like, I feel like we, we do not get the space to properly feel the loss of John Locke because in season four, you get that cliffhanger ending and then you've got the entire however many months to wait to figure out like how is that how did that happen that can't be real they're gonna resurrect him you know we need to bring him to like is so provocative so like you're not really upset about the death of john locke so much as like you're wondering where it's going and then so much of of season five is devoted to the idea of like he's not really dead is he in like this first half so you're not like you're not overly concerned. And then there's no space any further um, once he leaves other than a single episode to contemplate the possibility of what this show looks like without this foundational character in it. And what do these characters look like um, with uh, this tremendous void in their lives? This person who at least presented as having all of the answers or at least all of the faith that all of the answers would someday be provided. I think that we as viewers would have benefited from being able to live in that headspace with a character like Jack and some of these other people because we never really get that chance. Instead, we just get thrust back into like John Locke is special. John Locke is important. And when the card flips over, 
that it is a bit of a cosmic joke, that it is a, a long con, that it is the monster has uh, manipulated this poor fool, this sucker, as he will call him, mm-hmm. um, like really, really, really stings and just feels mean, as opposed to, I think, what it really is when you reconceive it, when you think about it uh, with the context of like everything that's surrounding it, when you can kind of like unstick this in time to a certain extent it's a tragedy. It is. It is like a horrible yep. tragedy. But there is also um, there is like hope built into the life of John Locke. And I just I don't know that the show lets you feel those things. Uh, at least not very easily. And like I'm not here to say that all fiction should be easily accessible. But I think that this was like an important story beat for the grand mythology of the show. That like maybe like stumbles out of the hands a little bit like it like trips over the sidewalk and so like it gets a little shaken up on it on the way to delivery <laughs> a little, little scrape on the knee you know and like i think that like i still think it's like really important i still think that it is like really really critical that this happens i think this has to happen on the show um like i think for the end game of the show this this story involved you're gonna have to die john I think so. I think like it's really important because it's a catalyst for so much of the rest of the show. And I think it has really important thematic undertones for the entire fabric of the, of the narrative. I just think that like it happens really quickly. Um, and there are choices within the episode itself that almost like completely rob it of suspense, right? Like we start the episode with the man in black on the beach you know, as, as John Locke, you know, and like structurally, that's such a, it's, it's a choice. It's a choice for sure. Yeah. I think that especially again, now that we're sort of spoiled by your fantastic nuclear option, the new order of watching the back half of season five, it really crystallized to me how much the life and death of Jeremy Bentham should have been a later season five episode, particularly I think coming right off of 316. Now, I know there are some benefits to it that we're going to get into as to like how this actually compares sometimes with 316. We do get a bit of an answer as to, okay, well, what happened to the the rest of that plane from last time? But man, after knowing that there was a point in time where this was going to come before 316, for many reasons, I am so happy it didn't. Because yeah. imagine, Josh, if we got before that really fantastic opening of 316 of Jack and Kate and Hurley finally arriving on the island. If we instead got welcome back to the island with a resurrected John Locke and a bunch of people we don't know, ooh, that would not have been good in my opinion. And look, I will also say that I think part of my score is informed of the timing as well. I am so happy that there have been people, uh, Riley, for instance, who have said, this is the the best way the episode has ever played. Is that the part where you put it in the season? That being said, I'm certainly going to judge it from the place it comes in the season to me. Yeah. And I could not agree more that I think, especially if we have this much more alluring option of keeping the mystery open a bit more it it feels like we don't necessarily need that question answered immediately. Like, we end the episode on such an alluring cliffhanger in 316 with, oh my god, you know, the Oceanic Six is back on the island. Oh, and Jin is now met up with them, but he's wearing a Dharma uniform? What's going on here? And then we take an entire week off of that. Yeah. It it, it, it feels like it's a it's a not a great follow-through on such, like, an alluring build that we get in the previous episode. Yeah, I think... I I very I very much feel feel that um, 
it played better for me doing it in the nuclear option way than it's ever played for me before. I still think that there are like choices within the within the episode that like I if if I had the keys, like I I might have like, you know, attempted something a little different, but I do think that like the the way that I have it written out that it's you know it's the first five episodes of the season intact. Then I think that you could like you know it's Lafleur or three one six. I prefer Lafleur first, then three one six, and then you go Namaste. He's our you. Whatever happened happened. So you're in this entire chunk of time without John Locke. He's just gone. Uh, that's five full episodes that he's just completely absent from until the very end of that fifth episode. Uh, whatever happened happened, which ends with Benjamin Linus waking up in like the medic bay with John Locke sitting uh, on the bed next to him saying, welcome back to the land of the living. And then suddenly like that is like a terrifying twist where you're like, Oh shit, I wasn't even looking for Locke to be back. I almost Mm -hmm. like had had moved on a little bit And that way that the structure of the life and death of Jeremy Bentham beginning with these portions of the man in black as Locke um, being like front and center in the episode like, that's already feeding off of the energy of what would be a cliffhanger of whatever happened happening. Like, oh, shit, John Locke. Um, so, like, you don't actually really have to change the life and death of Jeremy Bentham for it to play right. Uh, like, it it, play, it plays really smoothly um, in that regard. Um, so, in terms of, like, if we're just talking about episode placement, like, I cannot more strongly advocate for repeat viewers or first-time viewers that I think that this plays better later in the season and you can just do that. Um, but then I think that there are things within the episode that we can, um, you know, we can take a, I don't know, I was going to take a drill too, but I, I can't do the Saul voice right now. <laughs> He got his bit here. We're going. We're spending the entire episode off-island anyway, so I Just think about, it yeah. makes sense. Maybe, unless Saul has sort of like a Tom-friendly life off-island at some point. I guess we are uh, off-island for the whole thing, other than, um, well, I mean, we're at the Hydra, and then there's a little bit of the, who's your son, uh, that we have, to, we have to get through. But let's get into the episode. It is another Lindelof and Cuse jam, directed by Jack Bender. It aired on February 25th. 2009 it does focus on uh the soon-to-be late john locke um and it begins with what we heard at the top of the podcast we're in hydra island we're in like an office caesar who is somebody who uh we just like barely (laughs) met last week you don't intend it but i hear derision in your voice when you say caesar there's almost like this mug to like oh and caesar's digging through the life magazines oh my god caesar who who is who's here is just like a little bit of a bait and switch which i don't hate because i do think like when he gets popped it's a surprise and that's kind of great um but he is you know he's like kind of like he and alana are sort of being established as this like as like this like jack and kate of the new ajira crew they seem to be the two that are in charge but they're keeping secrets from each other obviously alana's secrets are massive and caesar's are as big as a mag light um as he's just like he's finding a shotgun he stuffs it in his bag alana's like what did you find nothing useful he's like well what did you put in your bag and he throws a flashlight to her so there's like this tension here between these two strangers that's sort of emulating some of the intrigue of oceanic 815 except they will not capitalize on any of it uh it is here for like a minute and they will completely sidestep this uh moving forward we're gonna get like 
really nothing from this character whatsoever. Like Caesar exists basically just for a punchline, but it is a punchline that is delivered relatively quickly because it's just going to be yep. a few episodes from now. Alana, you, you, uh, the royal you lost. Like in the watching of this, <laughs> and like the 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 existence of this podcast and the conversations that we get to have, Mike. The pressure is on all of that to convince me that Alana is anything other than a cosmic joke, except it's not funny, you know, because like mm. that is effectively what they're going to do with her. She's just going to be here to blow up um, and just like get a couple of people in position and then she explodes and she's done. Um, I find what the show uh, does with the character of Alana and in its addressing of uh, the the viewer by introducing this character, like... This is like the kind of thing where like you should have known better after Nikki and Paolo and like you don't get yes. to just arse to this character. Um, it's just not fair. Like you can't arse the main character. Uh, and if you're going to introduce a main character this late in the series, like be very, very, very careful. I think Alana is a huge misstep for the show. Yeah. I mean, she got a full what? Didn't she get like a character portrait for season six? She was a series like, regular. Franklin. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which is which is wild to me. I couldn't agree more that like I definitely consider this almost like a step off of Nikki and Paolo. Maybe this is not necessarily going through this idea of when they genuinely wanted to introduce those background characters to build them out, you know, sincerely. So like you said, this was more so a, Hey, we're going to try it again, but we know what we're going to do with them. But these are two characters that never worked for me either. What I'm intrigued by, and I guess this is sort of putting the pressure on future Josh and Mike, I will be intrigued to see how many points one way or the other these two escape with in MVPs or LVPs? Because you would think, like we did with Nikki and Paolo, okay, are they just going to get like bombed into submission? But in my opinion, Josh, these are two such nothing burger characters that I would not be surprised if they end up turning out to be a wash because there's not many things they do in these episodes that really convince me one way or the other to give them any sort of points. Yeah, um, and I think like... I'm a little bit up in the air over like which character like uh grinds my gears more. I think it ultimately is Alana because of the way that the show treats her. Um like yeah, Caesar it's, it's um it's it's very much our Charlotte stuff, right? Yeah. Of like, okay, you introduce her with this mystique, Jacob visits her in a hospital and says you have work to do, and then she gets blown up. It's it's this odd idea of trying to put in your head okay, what was the intention behind this character? Caesar might have just been in for, for a lark. you and know, that's or like fine. A, a, yeah, like, I'll take fine, a lark. But Alana, but Alana seemed to have some sort of attachment to this overall mythos that becomes the most important thing in the show yeah. in the final season that, that I think still is a bit nonsensical. And I think that she actually has some great scenes across the show, including in season six. Like, she is going to have, like, a really emotional uh, scene with Ben in Dr. Linus, uh where um i forget exactly like who's gonna have me like who will who will take me where do i go and she goes i'll have you and like that's her moment of growth is like this is why she was picked like this is why she was worthy to be part of this cause to protect the island because her heart is pure that in the moment she recognizes this man who killed her mentors like true horror and true regret and true remorse and like not even necessarily remorse but like that this is such a lost soul that this is such a broken man and she overcomes any feelings of vengeance that she has she's able to like 
swallow them and push them down and maybe will be uh, serving justice later on down the line, but she's not going to execute him and she'll have him. I'll have you. It's like a really powerful scene. And I look forward to getting there because I think it's really, really great. And then they just blow her up. So it's like, you can't even tell me that like you didn't have stuff that you were doing with her. Like you just needed to commit to it more or you shouldn't have done we it at all. We want the Alana essay. Riley, I don't know who it is. I have those, those smart people out there who pen us fantastic essays. I want an essay about Alana if people are so you know passionate about the character yeah i mean i just i think that like she's it's not like it's not necessarily that like i don't know like it's it's not even necessarily that the problem is is uh is the character herself or the performance uh zuelka robinson who who plays the the character uh like that's that's not that's not the issue i think it is like a like a like a we got we're we're in Nikki Powell territory again. How do we get out? It's like you're only there because you like you kind of willed yourself into that. It didn't have to happen. Yeah. This this um, is what happens when you introduce these types of characters so late into a series run. Well, without right? like, without like, confidence, without confidence exactly. is like the key part of it. Like I think like they like very uh, without any like measure of confidence. I think that they move forward with this character, and I think like that's the big issue. Is like they're just not like. They're just not, like, set in the character. If they were set in the character, then people like her, people like frickin' Zoe, like, these are people who can, like, show up in, like, the penultimate and final seasons of the show and be rock star characters. But instead, like, this is, like, my biggest thing about Lost from this moment forward is, like, most of the characters that they introduce from this moment forward, I think, are mostly not great. Uh, for yeah. the most part, because well, because well, I think they're trying to serve a lot of masters, and they're trying to set up these characters, but also they're like, well, we have to do this sideways stuff and really focus on wrapping things up for eight one five as well. There's so much stuff that they're trying to accomplish in the final season, which again we'll get into as well with the way that they try to wrap things up. That it's it's tough, you know. This is the start of things that we'll certainly be discussing over the next few weeks. Let, I guess we should talk about because you know this will be soon revealed that that we are on. Hydra Island. That's another weird thing about the timing as well. Another reason why I like the nuclear order is I like putting this after, you know, Frank and son escape with the outrigger light, right? I was never a huge fan of, oh, the pilot and some woman escape. Like that's almost taking place after this fact that again, we're still sort of shifting around the timeline. But uh, Caesar's ransacking Ben's office, it looks like, right? Where they have uh, right. Jughead-esque life magazines. There's a bunch of maps, including one they stole from Daniel Faraday. They now has a bunch of hieroglyphics written on it. Looks like some sort of diagram that maybe outlines some sort of those magnetic hotspots that, that we were talking about. So lots of Easter eggs to be found in this little treasure trove of an office. Yeah, it's good. Uh, they do, like, there's a guy, he's standing in the thing, and so he's wearing a suit. Uh, so they go, and they peep on him, and it's John Locke wrapped in the Ajira blanket. It's a cool shot, and it is, like, especially cool in the context of this ain't John Locke. Uh, and so, yeah, this is it's it's, it's the Locke pan around, right? This is the end mm-hmm. of Tabula Rasa. When we get the camera panning yes. around to show John Locke, we get one here. And I love that. That's one of those things we've been talking about. It. It's actually one of my favorite things of season five so far is I love how much everyone on the show is punking us and trying to make us believe yet see in front of our faces the entire time this big ruse. And here we are with, with to your point. 
they're making us believe it's John Locke by introducing him the same way he was introduced to us in the first place. Yeah, and I love that it's like done in like the pitch of night, you know, like it's so it's 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 dead night in this moment. Uh and so like the the man of light that we saw once upon a time who was presented in sort of like this nefarious way all the way back at the end of Tabula Rasa uh contrast with this moment that is like kind of rendered like hell yeah oh my god he's back uh but it's actually like in the proper context this is terrifying like this is mm-hmm. this is like an activation moment for the man in black so um i I've, I've said it before but here he is on the show officially like season 5 man in black one of my all-time favorite characters on lost i think like the the way that terry o'quinn plays this version of Locke, and i believe the story goes that he didn't know like he didn't know the twist i think what right. he was what he was informed in terms of like how to play the characters like you no longer have any doubt. You have no questions about anything. You are here fueled with purpose and you know exactly what you're doing. So like all of like the like the existential dread of like this is my destiny, right? Like all of that's gone. All of that weight is lifted off the shoulders. And so the way that Terry O'Quinn plays that with like the with like the 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 pep in his step and the grin on his face um like is just like brilliantly brilliantly rendered. And then I think when you map that onto the character and what the character is really all about and what the character really wants, it's just exceptional stuff for me. Like you could take all the issues in the world that you want with the final season's portrayal of the character and like how they follow through on it. But I think the season five stuff just plays really, really chillingly in a way that is just driven all the way home by this almost accidental uh, performance uh, from Terry O'Quinn. Yeah, it's a really fun idea and just oh, it's it's buoyed so much by terry o'quinn's performance even just in this episode when you know that now he's able to play the like turbulent virulent depression of john locke in contrast to the oh happy day of quote-unquote john locke aka Smokey. it's a really fun dichotomy especially with this idea of freedom as well that at this point uh the smoke monster isn't necessarily free but he is certainly on the path that's going to get him to that point and so there is a certain amount of like confidence that we see in the character like you said might be attributed to due to the fact that oh he's happy because he's alive again and because he's back on the island and he feels like his purpose is renewed when no it's just because there's someone like inhabiting his meat bag body and saying oh yeah look at this this is a fun new outfit for me to try on i'm gonna trick a lot of people this way yeah oh god well we we can talk about it a little bit in this very next scene which we'll listen to we've got big sounds this week very talky episode and some really important conversations so not a sound wasted strap in they'll be long they'll be meaty uh and what we're talking uh about a conversation that is uh the the meat of a mango that's how it's meaty uh as uh the smoke monster as john locke who i used to refer to as smock uh mm-hmm. he is going to be standing on the edge of the beach he's here on the island he is in john Locke mode and he's going to have the following conversation with lana morning hello breakfast he's on the tree they're pretty good much obliged i'm Alana. John. Are those your boats? No. They're already here. There used to be three, but the pilot and some woman took one. 
didn't tell anyone, just ran off in the middle of the night. The pilot of the plane that brought you here? Yes, that's right. Do you have a passenger list? We'll have to talk to Caesar. Best mango I've ever eaten. Nobody remembers you being on the plane. Well, I don't remember being on it either. What do you remember? I remember a lot. Like why you're dressed up so nice? No, but I can guess. Please, guess. I think this suit is what they were going to bury me in. Sorry? You asked what I remembered. I remember dying. So, Josh, before we even get into this, I've been doing a lot of thinking as to what should the DTH nickname be for Smoke Monster John Locke. I have something I want to suggest, and of course people can will probably come up with much better suggestions, but if you'd allow me the floor... I'd like to suggest a nickname. LaFleur? Yeah, please, LaFleur, Sawyer, please get out of the way. Because, look, I love Smock. I want to go with something, but a little bit on the opposite side of things. I still want to go with the portmanteau. But what do we know about the smoke monster when he takes the form of John Locke? He is capable of shape-shifting. Yes. He loves to cause chaos. Yes. Maybe a little bit of mischief. Yes. And you might consider him to be the form of a god. Yes. Should we call him Loki? Uh, Yeah, if you want. Or Loki. Yeah, Loki might. Loki almost sounds like a cute nickname for Locke, though. John Loki. John Loki. John Loki. I think think we've settled on. I think John Loki is is an interesting place to go. Because, yeah, there is surprising resonance going on, I think, between that and the trickster god. Um, I mean, this is such a. This guy is such a little sinister turd. Uh, Yeah. The whole way that he's playing this through is like. It is like deeply Loki like, you know, and it's very mythical. Um, it is there. There is just like so much history that is baked in to all of this. Uh, and I think like there's a lot of different ways to like interpret the way that he's um, playing this scene. Like he wants to like account for all of the information. It's important for him to know where the candidates are. So he wants to know about the manifest. He wants to know about the outriggers. Um, you know, John Locke wouldn't have the memories of who got on a Jira 316. So the smoke monster scanning John Locke's body at some point in time in order to be able to like take him on. Um, he doesn't have that info because Locke is a corpse getting loaded onto a mm-hmm. Jira 316. So like, show me the manifest. Show me who's here. Show me who came back. There was an outrigger. Who was on it? I need to know these things. Um, so he's like, he's a man at, at work already. In one way, like it, it reads as John Locke caring about his friends and wanting to like hit back on the beach and like start moving again with purpose. But in reality, you can read it as like what it actually is, which is this John Loki uh, who is uh, who is ready to start making those moves as well, which are get Jacob killed, get these candidates killed, get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. And what I like about it too, is that again, much like a Loki type, he is 
not even speaking in half truths. He is speaking the truth, but it's his truth, not John Locke's truth. Sometimes he outright lies, though, and it's fabulous. Yeah, but like, what do you remember? I remember a lot. Not untrue. Uh, You know, he says he remembers dying. He could be speaking about himself and not necessarily John Locke. Right. You know, that this idea of like, oh, I remembered. And that's another thing to, to sort of ruminate on how his plan is finally being put in motion. What I do wonder, and I know we got a couple of questions about this as well from the hatchlings. I agree that I think where it is in the nuclear option, I think it's fine playing the episode where it is. But if it's if it has to be episode seven, how would you feel if we shuffle this episode around a bit? If we start where we're about to go with, okay, it starts with Locke pushing the wheel, waking up in Tunisia, and then we cut to this stuff. At the, the resurrection is the big cliffhanger, not this is the man who killed me. Yeah, I think that the way that the episode is structured currently and where it's positioned is a little challenging. Uh, I think it can be a little tough. I think that like that you start with this again, like I think that these are huge. This is a huge part of why like my issue is, is like, this is a huge part of like some of my concerns and why I understand other people's like reluctance to get on board with lost at this point moving forward. I think like this is like Hmm. the beginning of some non-starter stuff for certain people. Uh, and I think like this episode just kind of like it, it even like, it takes a good, a, a, like a decent amount of suspense out of it. it. Doesn't mean that like the final scene of John Locke isn't like shocking and awful. Like it still is, and it has its own certain dread baked into it. But you know that, or at least you, you, you know that on the other side of it, John Locke or a version of him at least is still standing. Right. Right. Uh, so I do think that if this episode is going to take place here. Um, if in this in this episode order, that I do think it probably makes the most sense for it to start in Tunisia, and I do think also, Mike, that at that point, this episode makes sense to have happen right after this place's death. Uh, yeah, I agree as well. Because again, I I think I could see what they're trying to do here, right? With pairing the openings of three one six and the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. Of okay, this is. We're setting up 2007 versus 1970. Right. These are the, and we're setting that up with the two groups that are now sort of literally on separate islands. But I just feel like from a story perspective, yeah, I, I think if it has to be here, I just think the, the ending of the reveal that John Locke is resurrected, especially if we go through this entire gauntlet as we're about to get into like this is this would be one of those rare episodes much like 316 that takes place completely chronologically uh that we're just going through a sequence a full sequence of events like it almost feels like this is a way for you to pull your head up above water and take a breath before you dive in that it might sort of i don't know denigrate the effects of going through this entire thing if you go through the entire tragedy of John Locke in 2007 and then end with like a weird sort of gut punch, but then like almost you pull the punch and that it's a reveal that, oh no, he's alive. There's a lot of fun questions about that as well too, right? Because then you might not even need that this is the man who killed me. Then you just get the automatic assumption of, oh shit, Ben was on that plane. Right. And now John Locke is alive. What's going to happen? I, I sort of feel like personally with where it is right now, it kind of shot their wad a little bit. And again, not to say that it completely blows the episode rating but i do think they they sort of miss an opportunity to i guess you know you could put your big shocker up front as like a reason to have people tune in but i think 
they they miss an opportunity to really build to a giant moment at the end. Yeah, I I think ultimately I agree with that. I think ultimately I agree with that. I think that this is an episode for me that is going to be bolstered largely by two things. Um, one is that like every Terry O'Quinn scene as an acting showcase is spectacular for like everybody mm-hmm. involved, basically not maybe every single person who's in a scene with him, but for the most part, uh, like you get like a really great Navy and Andrews scene. You get a really great Evangeline Lilly scene, Matthew Fox, like, uh, of course, Michael Emerson, um, like even this Alana scene, I think is a good scene. So like the, like the, like the two hander quality throughout this episode i think is is really strong and obviously as you said buoyed by terry o'quinn um just like doing so much of that work um so there's there's going to be um that piece of it that is really going to to push this forward and then like because i was able to like bake stuff onto it in the way that i watched it this time i think that's propelling it forward but there are like some structural concerns to like the structural integrity of this uh of this episode that for sure uh, mess with me a little bit. Um, I think that you're pinpointing a, a really good example of it right now. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's go, let's go to Tunisia here because, yeah, this, this is where we, we end up in the exit, right? As you said, we sort of relitigate the whole, who's your son? Uh, and then Locke wakes up in the desert. So this time around, right, there's no Bedouins on horses. Locke cannot go, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he has a much more d- disastrous trip. No, he doesn't I, say, yeah. He says, may. Can anyone he, he help goes, me? He goes, ah, oh, my yeah. freaking leg. Yeah. Uh, but I, Locke notices a camera, to your point. That's what he yells. So did did they have that last time? Do you think that Winmore possibly put that camera up after Ben came out the exit to be like, oh, if people are popping out of this place, I better watch it. Yeah, it's possible that they were able to like kind of like backtrack that, right? Of like, he's here, he's here, oh God, Ben Linus. And like maybe they're able to somehow like uh like retroactively figure out his like Moriarty alias. Like they're able to like kind of like pinpoint with all sorts of whatever Dharma E Widmore money backed uh mathematical nonsense uh that this is like the spot because Locke is just going to show up in the same spot effectively um or it could be that like this just is where the island barfs you out because like if we're like (laughs) if we're if this is where the donkey wheel just throws you up uh if we're like accepting this idea that we've posited and i know you like it and i like it and it's a little hard to conceive of how this happens if it's not this that like the frozen donkey wheel chamber this like sacred space-time place 
exists in its own like sort of like unique moment um that if that's not if that's not what it is uh then like how is it that or or sorry that that takes place back in like the 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 four toed statue in full form days right so like mm-hmm. if, if Locke is going to push the wheel there and then he's getting thrown out into tunisia from all the way back then that this just seems to be like this is like the central magnetic place that this is the point that it pushes you at. So maybe just like yeah. Widmore finds that out or knows that somehow. Yeah. And you know, I think he has a general sense again, like he knows about the lamp po- or maybe he doesn't, but like he gets a general sense of things, but I mean, the misery starts here for John Locke, right? Because he, as, as opposed to Ben Linus, right? Who again, action hero star pukes up, takes his parka off and then whips a bunch of Bedouins and takes their horse. Locke has to lay there for basically the entire day miserable. And I think that's a very clear indicator that John Locke is going to have a very different time back in the real world than Benjamin Linus does. What I'm also really intrigued by with this episode is, like you said, there are many callbacks to the, the arc of John Locke that we've seen so far. And there are so many close calls with death here, Josh. Even starting here, right, where, like, he nearly gets hit by the truck, uh, and he nearly gets killed by the Bedouins yeah. here. Uh, I It reminds me, actually, of all of those early flashbacks from seasons one through three, where we were really being led along of, okay, will this be when we find out that John mm-hmm. Locke got paralyzed, right? When he gets hit by the car outside of the toy barn, right. when he gets shot in the leg. Right. And that sort of is, like, a, a, a microcosm of this to me, that we get so many close calls before it finally happens. Yeah, so he... he- he breaks his leg, he, or he broke his leg already. He's just lying on the side of the road. Uh, Can anybody help me? A bunch of people are going to show up after he's like, just like, poor, poor John has just been like laid out there to dry for however long. Uh, some people throw him in the truck. Uh, he starts getting medicated. He's in like this, uh, he's like in the hospital. Matthew Avedon is watching. Uh, Locke has to bite down on uh, the thing for his pain. He, yeah, listen, uh, the Boone's on the other foot now. That's what happened with Boone after he climbed up with that plane for Locke. It comes back around. Yeah, I don't think accidentally, too. Like, I think, like, uh, this is, this is, this is certainly the show is, like, calling back to that moment. Uh, yeah, and also Locke believing he's a sacrifice the island demanded. Yeah. He is the Boone. Yes, yeah. And I guess he's lucky that, like, at least he's going to survive this thanks to modern medicine uh, and not yeah. having to, like, get an IV through a sea urchin <laughs> needle. Yeah, or uh, his his leg cut off with a plain door. Right, yeah. Uh, so he eventually passes out, and when he wakes up, it's nighttime. And he is going to have not his first ever, but his first time in a long time for the other person on the end of this conversation, conversation with Charles Widmore. Let's listen in sound two. You had a compound fracture. The doctors here did their best, but I had a specialist flown in to reset your leg properly. It's nice to see you again, John. Do I know you? Yes. I understand you've been confused. Imagine how I feel. I met you when I was 17. Now all these years later, here we are. You look exactly the same. Uh, Who are you? My name is Charles Woodmore. Tell me, John. How long has it been for you since 
We first met since you walked into our camp and you spoke to Richard. Four days? <laughs> That's incredible. The camera in the desert, that was yours. Yeah. How did you know I'd be there? That's the exit. I was afraid Benjamin might fool you into leaving the island, as he did with me. I was their leader. The others? They're not the others to me, they're my people. We protected the island, peacefully, for more than three decades. But then, I was exiled by him just as you were no ben wasn't even there when i left he was already gone i i, I wasn't exiled i chose to leave why would you do that john you've come to bring them back the ones who left no I understand you're lying to me. I do. But there's something you should know. All your friends who left the island, they've been back three years. Three years? They've gone back to their normal lives. And none of them has spoken a word of truth about where they were. I have to bring them back. Everything in my power to help you do that. Why? Why? Why would you help me? Because there's a war coming, John. And if you're not back on the island when that happens, the wrong side is going to win. pretty wild that this is the only couple of scenes that Charles Winmore has with this John Locke, right? Because they're going to have stuff in season six, but that's John Loki. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this scene and the next scene, and they don't really have anything beyond that because he's just... He's dead. Yeah, he dead. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, yeah. So, so, I mean, this is... I mean, I think you put it so well these past couple episodes, right, with... Between Eloise and Ben and Widmore, the race to be the last person to get to all of these these pieces in the game, as as Desmond would say, you know, who who can sort of get to be the last one into their air and to see what Widmore is attempting to do here to turn Locke against Ben, especially. Listen, we don't know too too much about why Widmore got exiled and all this stuff going on with Ben because we sort of yada yada through that. But at least knowing a bit about his history and the yarn that he's spinning to Locke about how Ben should not be trusted and he should, uh, I, I think it's it's unique to see how Locke is also a player in that game, despite him being a very very late addition. Yeah. So where does this land you in terms of like uh, Charles Widmore on like the moral alignment chart? Uh, that like for him, he's like, I'm going to help you get everybody back there. I'm going to do whatever I can to make this happen. Like if Eloise Hawking's whole deal is like, she needs to get everybody there uh, in order to, you know, start the process of like, maybe just maybe her son is right. And the variable stuff is going to be true. So I have to get like Jack Shepard in position to like blow up a nuclear bomb and maybe it's <laughs> going to work. Like, 
do you buy this from Widmore that he is like deeply believing in the war of good versus evil at this point? Is he totally team John Locke? Like, where are you standing? <sighs> Certainly, like, if the war is between Widmore and Ben, one of these guys actively seemingly helps Locke, and one of these guys actively, not seemingly, but absolutely cards up, <laughs> murders John Locke. Yeah, though, again, uh, concerning the way Locke walks into that scene, he might have seen that as as helping him. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough to see. I could see the argument of, yes, Widmore is trying to help things, right? This is certainly the argument of, oh, the reason why Des- uh, Widmore sends Desmond out onto the island is because, like, he knows he has that purpose and he's helping keep everything intact. Again, going back to that Eloise Hawking thing. But it's tough for me to, I think, digest that looking back on all of the depraved crap that Charles Winmore has done before this, right? John Locke points out, like, hey, you sent a whole group of people to murder us all, and Winmore's like, oh, well, I just wanted to get to Ben. But no, part of that plan, part of Kimi's, you know, secondary protocol, was just to murder every single person on that island, including John Locke. That's a really tough pill to swallow while you're also gulping it down with the water up. Oh, yeah, uh, well, actually, we're doing this to help you because we're on the we're the good guys, and this is on the right side. You know, you have to have a doctor force those pills down your throat, like the one who does it with John Locke before they gruesomely reset his leg. I'm very happy we skipped past that. Yes. It's, it's tough for me to – what I could very much see is much like we've talked about with Ben. Again, he and Charles are cut, cut from the same cloth, the same white cloth they all wear at the Jacobian-like funeral of I'm doing bad things for a good reason. That he's like almost deluded himself into believing this is a war that I want to win. You know, I certainly think – he has this idea of a birthright, right? He talks about they're not the others to be, they're my people. He can certainly feel like, I mean, Josh, Charles Widmore sort of has like a Daenerys Targaryen-like streak to him a little bit, right? Of this is my promised kingdom. I was exiled for like reasons that were outside of my control. Now I'm back with a vengeance to take back what's mine with fire and fury. I really get that feeling from Charles Widmore here. And so maybe it's just that mapping that ma- gives me a tough time of thinking, okay, he's absolutely doing this for the good and helping John Locke. Maybe it's just the uh, you know the the pessimistic side of me, but I can't help but look at this interaction and think, like, dude, he's using you. He's using you so badly. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard. It's hard to say. I don't feel like totally personally set on. Um, on an answer here. So I'm open to like theories and stuff. Like I would, I would mm-hmm. love this is one where I would really love to turn to the hatchlings. Like, what are your, like, what are your thinking? What's your thinking behind? Like why Widmore is so adamantly here to help John Locke. We've got so many smart people out there in the audience. I think are going to have yeah. like big thoughts on this. So, uh, there's a there's just a lot of like emotional content in this episode that I think is probably we could get hung up here for a while. Oh um, boy, bad choice of words. Uh, <laughs> I, I know. Sorry. Um, Woodmore is going to give Locke the Bentham ID, the passport, an international phone. Just press twenty three. It'll call me. Like guys, come on. Like I know we love those numbers, but like it's not. Gonna, That's not how a phone it's works. Not going to work that way. <laughs> I, I also want to ask, so Winmore's going to show some papers to John, right, that basically says, oh, well, uh, they're here and they're all lying to you. What do you think Locke's reaction to that is, though? Because let's remember, like, the last time he saw Jack, he told him, you're going to have to lie. And we'll talk about this later on with 
you know, maybe where Jack is coming from. Why is he so angry at Locke, despite the fact that he did listen to Locke at the end of the day? Do you think Locke has a reaction to finding out that they indeed did lie as he recommended? Hmm. I don't know. Um, it's hard. Hard one, Mike. I'm not sure. Because you would think that is sort of like a victory on paper, yeah. right? Of, oh, well, they left, but at least they're they're doing what I want to. But I think it's more so played in the way Widmore is playing it is to be like, they're a lost cause right now. Look at them lying. They won't even talk about the right. island. When really, from like a, a semantic perspective, they did what he wanted them to do. Yeah, I think like, well, he's like going to come to like regret it to some extent, right? Because like having them live this lie they're so ingrained in it that it's their reality it's their truth um some of them are just like so embittered to actual fact uh of what happened to them uh and what the like the truth of their circumstances was that they just like reject it completely and so that makes Locke's pursuit of them really really challenging um so i think on one level it's like good it worked like you did what you were told but on the other hand it's like but like now can you do what i'm telling you to do again (laughs) Great, you lied. Now for the second part of the plan that I didn't reveal. Yeah. Now you got to come. Now back. you got to come back. Um, so uh, th- Locke is going to be like. So what about how you sent a team of killers to the island? Uh, and Charles is going to say, I needed Ben Linus removed so that it could be your time. The island needs you, and it has for a long time. Um, makes you wonder, like, to what degree, you know did Richard Alpert and Widmore have enough of a relationship that Richard Alpert at one point tells both Eloise Hawking and Charles Widmore, like this dude, remember that guy who like traveled through time and we saw all those people with like the light flashing stuff. Like that's John Locke. Like those were two people who were like deeply central to the leadership of the others for a long while. Is it possible that they are kind of like read in to the Charles to the John Locke prophecy in a way that like Benjamin Linus is not Um, that like when Ben takes over, he just like does not quite get that memo. It's a good question. I mean, I think it also helps with more than when he sees Locke, right? It's just like he saw him. Also, we finally get the answer to how long the first part of the season took. It seems like four days just about was how long it took for them to be traveling in and out of time. Hopefully they got some sleep along the way. Otherwise they are adult AF and the misadventures are going to continue next week. But yeah, I mean, maybe it's just a matter of, Hey, we heard about this, the legend of John Locke as it were. And maybe they decide to like keep it under wraps for whatever reason to those who came after, including Ben. It was more of a, Hey, you kind of had to be there type of story. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Locke's going to say, so Richard Alpert told me I have to die. And Winmore's like, I don't know why he said that, but I'm not letting that happen. It's like, ah, you kind of let that happen. See, that's the thing again, which is why I'm getting a lot of manipulation out of this scene, especially the the tete-a-tete of what makes you think you're so special because because you are. Like, that feels so much in line with the scene we're going to get later on with Ben and Locke, right? Where Ben tells him the same thing of just like uh, when we're saying, oh, I had to kill everyone else so you could lead. Ben said, oh, I had to move the island so that you could lead. It really just feels like a tug of war yeah. with John Locke as the ropes. Yeah. Uh, so he's going to hook him up with Matthew Abaddon. So Matthew Abaddon officially back on the show for one night only folks uh uh who uh it's a reunion of sorts for these two 
two characters, Abaddon and Locke. Uh, we will uh, learn more about that. He's going to drive him to the airport, though, and in the in the first uh, you know leg of these two people uh, knowing each other. Sorry again, uh, Locke is really just not going to want to have anything to do with Abaddon. Locke is so mean to Abaddon. Don't talk to me. <laughs> Yeah, Abaddon is his Uber driver, right? But I think like, uh, it, makes, it, make, it makes sense that, like, you know, Locke was just, like, walkabouting, uh, you know, walking about. Uh, he was in the island. He was in the prime of his destiny. And now he is, uh, like, filled with this idea that maybe he's not going to get back to the island. Maybe he's supposed to die. Uh, and regardless, you know, we know how he feels about uh, you guys have electricity and refrigerators and chicken. You're cheating. You know, like, so, like, taking an Uber, having, like, Pharisee. a personal driver feels like cheating, probably. Like, he probably well, really hates all of this. I think it also comes down to motivation. Like, we'll notice that Locke is, fine, is going to start to open up to Abaddon as the episode progresses. And I think there's also a read that Locke has a purpose, right? He's been given his marching orders bring them back and that's what he's going to do but as he starts to talk to people and that goal becomes more in doubt that veneer is going to crack a little bit that motivation is become going to become a little more hollow and then i think at that point he's going to open up more to someone like matthew abaddon in this case like you said it's more of an employee status and then it becomes more of a confidant the less sure he gets about his goal right um so he needs to figure out where he's going to go first so he wants to go to santo domingo in the dominican republic he chooses saeed as the first person he's going to go to i think it's a great choice personally i so there's there's some interesting things as to like why they order things the way they do i like saeed first because saeed is the person you want to go to for many reasons right like he is the most logical I think he also, this scene that we're going to listen to, does a really great job of setting up Saeed setting up to Locke, like, here's why you're going to fail at the moment. And also, like, Saeed and Locke sort of have this, I'd say, mutual understanding. You know, we talked about this in The Greater Good, right? That, like, they can sort of see through each other's BS, or at least Saeed can, with Locke, that I think Locke can sort of see eye to eye with Saeed. But Saeed is doing a little bit of humanitarian work. He's he's with this sort of, like... uh you know, uh, what was it? A Habitat for Humanity in Santo Domingo. The interesting thing, Josh, is I don't know if you noticed that. So the the photo that Widmore shows Locke is of Saeed working on this roof. When we go to visit Saeed, he's in the exact same place doing the exact same thing, which I would really want to believe that like this roof just keeps breaking over and over again. And Saeed's one job is to fix this one house the entire time he's down there. You're going to see him in this exact same spot in uh, Dead is... No, not Dead is Dead. He's our you as well. Yes, Uh, he just just keeps going back to that one roof for one reason. That's the unlucky roof. He's working on it. You know, it's taking some time. Uh, but he's gonna go to Saeed. I think Saeed being his first, like they have like their working relationship from like the Enter Seven Seven days. They've mm-hmm. had moments where they've been able to like even when like they disagree or dislike each other, which is most of the time. Like I think that <laughs> they are often able to like work relatively well together. Uh, so I think like Locke sees Saeed as like probably of everybody who is off the island who he needs to pursue if not like the most emotional choice right off the bat, then at least the one who um, is probably the most logical person on the board. 
that, you know, short of like Jack, who is all about reason above all else, uh, that Syed is is very much a man of reason as well, but believes what he can see and has not denied the existence of some of like the unbelievable things that they have seen. So I think for like Locke going to Saeed and also just like his extraordinary capabilities, uh, mm-hmm. like I think is a big one. Do you think uh, like Widmore's got intel on Saeed? You'd think that maybe he would have wanted to stop him from like assassinating some of his friends, uh, but whatever. Um, all right, let's listen in. Maybe this, I mean, no, this could this could have been an after the. Oh yeah, I guess you know. I was gonna say maybe this all happened before Ben arrived. Uh, you know, in the years in between. I've been but watching no, your still... friends. I've been watching your friends. I've seen Saeed kill all of my friends. <laughs> but don't worry, I'll send some of my goons after him. If yeah. they get stabbed on a dish rash washing rack or killed yeah. outside of a mental hospital, so be it. I've I don't watched, really care. I've watched him kill so many of my friends. Uh, and, but here he is unharmed. Uh, anyway, let's listen in on the conversation. We'll listen in on all of uh, Locke coming to see his friends. We'll listen on all of those conversations, starting here with Saeed. Hey, Saeed. Mira. un visitante. I don't believe this. You actually want me to go back? I know how it sounds, Saeed, but you have to trust me. This is the only way we're going to save them. I'm not going back. For two years, I was manipulated into thinking I was protecting everyone on the island. Who was manipulating you? Ben. So who is manipulating you, John? This is coming from me, nobody else. I know you, Saeed. And deep down in your heart, you know we never should have left the island. It's only because I left the island that I was finally able to marry the woman I loved. We spent nine months together. The best nine months of my life, John. That's what I know in my heart. Where is she now? She was murdered. sorry why do you really need to go back is it just because you have nowhere else to go if you change your mind i'll be staying under the name jeremy bentham in la at the westerfield hotel and if you change your mind you're welcome to come back here and do some real good John. So, how do you expect Locke to do that work? He can't get up on the dang roof. Mm, not yet. He needs to do some recovery. You know what I wish for John Locke? Obviously, whatever happened happened, so this has to happen this way, I suppose. Um, is I wish, I wish that John Locke goes through. I wish you'd believed me. Um, <laughs> I wish that he goes through all the things he goes through. He gets denied by everybody gets denied by. And after the Jack conversation is like, this sucks. But Saeed offered me a place to stay. I'm going to go hang out with Saeed for a bit. Uh, and like, if, if uh, Richard Alpert was right and I'm going to have to die, then maybe I'm going to die there. But if I'm also like going to be in danger, 
think maybe I want the assassin nearby, like the friendly mm. neighborhood assassin. So I, I wish that for I wish that for Saeed. Is, is is that like his Shawshank? Like here's a boat, yes. uh, you know, in another Spanish speaking country that we're we're gonna head to. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it'd be his, his little Shangri La right there. That'd be Shangri La. I want to see him like walking up to Saeed refurbishing. I mean, I guess we did see that he's re- he's not refurbishing the boat; he's refurbishing the house. It's yeah, like the exactly. end of Shawshank. Uh, yeah, exactly. John Law crawled through so much shit. Yeah, uh, but he does not like. He has. I mean, he has other moments right where he like passionately accepts the rain but yeah i mean speaking of from a water metaphor this is like a cold splash of water for john Locke. yeah right what i would i would compare this to is john Locke is striding around carefree motivated uh saeed is the first step down a long flight of stairs that he is going to fall down yeah. we're essentially in being the first person to visit saeed saying you're foolish what you're trying to tell me is foolish. You're being manipulated, much like I was. Please go away. Leave me be with my life. And hey, you know what? If you want to come back, sure. But I have a feeling you won't. Yeah. Um. But I think that Saeed is like relatively reasonable. He's like, I've been through enough. I've been through so much, and I'm like, I'm I'm trying really hard. Uh, what is it from Pulp Fiction? I'm trying real hard to be a shepherd. I know that should be Jack's <laughs> line. Uh, but, like he's trying not to kill people anymore. <laughs> he's trying not to get roped into this stuff. He killed so many people. He was so upset. He's now trying to like improve lives and the the poor, uh, broken Saeed Jarrah like whirlpool of death that he is uh, at the center of for his entire existence. So sad. Uh, but here in this moment, he is just like trying to say to Locke, like, no. Yeah, can't do I it. mean, you. there's another world, right, where Locke is going to say for Saeed what he's about to say in this next scene of, like, the poor boy's been through enough. I don't want to ask him to go back. Yeah. Um, well, let's do that. So let's go to New York. Uh, Locke is, he's going to ask Matthew Abaddon, look up Helen Norwood. She's an old girlfriend of mine. Uh, that's who he wants to see. Uh, Locke has come to see Michael Dawson's son. And there he is, taller, non-ghost Wal- uh, Walt. Uh, as he is here, he's across the street uh lock is gonna wave at him walt is gonna is gonna wave back uh and the two are going to have a conversation is this the only malcolm david kelly scene of the episode and i think outside of the the new man in charge is this the last time we're ever going to see walt outside of archival footage from season six this is the last appearance of malcolm david kelly on lost okay let's listen in I'll give you two some friends. Hey, John. Hi, Walt. What happened? I hurt my leg. You don't seem surprised to see me. I've been having dreams about you. You were on the island wearing a suit, and there were people all around you. They wanted to hurt you, John. Good thing they're just dreams. Is my dad... Is he back on the island? I haven't talked to him in three years. I figured he must have gone back. Um, last I heard, your dad was on a freighter near the island. So why'd you come to see me? I just wanted to make sure you were okay. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. 
Well, I gotta go. It was good seeing you, John. Yeah. Take care. I take it you didn't invite him alone. Boy's been through enough. I have so many thoughts about this seed. Uh, yeah. It's only a minute. It's a minute and a half, but like, God, there's so much to say about it. All right. Start talking, kid. Let's hear it. Well, let's, I mean, let's start with the music, because uh, Jim Fells mentions this, but I actually think a big thing this episode does get right is the music, because this is the last lap for John Locke. We get so much of his music, and specifically the the walkabout music really comes back again and again and makes so much sense. That was the first John Locke episode. This, for all intents and purposes, is the last John Locke episode. That's also a representation of like his journey, right? This this whole purpose idea, and we hear it here as well. It's also a great season one callback, which the entire Walt thing is. Uh, and there's, so there's things I like and things that I don't like about this scene. What I, I love the small touches about this, you know, like really touching upon that mentor-mentee sort of fatherly relationship from season one. And one of the small touches that I actually really enjoy is in one of their last lines together, Walt calls Locke John instead of what he called him in season one, which is Mr. Locke. Yeah. And it almost like hints at some sort of familiarity between the two that despite now Walt having been gone for three years estranged from this man that he like still has some warmness and some fondness towards him we're gonna hear we heard that and there's no place like home right where Walt tells Hurley that you know none of you visiting me but he did you could tell that he meant a lot to Walt that he regards him on a first name basis the other side of that is in that scene that I mentioned uh, Walt refers to Hurley as Jeremy Bentham. Locke never mentions that pseudonym once in this scene. Right, right. But I mean, like, it could be that he sees the uh, the obituary, right, uh, of Jeremy Bentham, and that's enough. Or is Jeremy yeah, Bentham maybe. not dead at that point? I don't. I don't know. I also don't know why would like he if he's living in New York, why would he see the obituary for? And like, like, it seemed like Jack just recognized the name Jeremy Bentham on the obituary and, like, went... I don't know, know some sort of, like, cosmic of losty nonsense that, like, a newspaper fell out of the sky and dropped into Walt's lap. <laughs> yeah, a, a bird <laughs> flew into a skyscraper. And that's that's the other thing as well for me is I'm gonna admit, and I don't know if this is a hot take, I don't like the whole I had a dream about you, Mr. Locke. Yeah. Because uh, it just feels to me like they're digging up this really buried plot point of Walt being special. And it also doesn't feel like it's hinting towards his power set, if we're going with that term, right? Like, we talked about how he was maybe able to transport his image across the island. He definitely can talk to animals. Let's not Desmond him up. Let's not throw prophetic dreams in here as well. It just, it felt to me a little bit like, well, let's remember Walt is special, even though he's not on the show anymore. So let's throw in some like random spiritual thing that shows he's still connected with the island, even though we're not doing anything with it anymore. Right. Um, yeah, I think like there's, there's pieces of that, that like the show is acknowledging that Walt is just one of these people that has these extra normal powers, uh, that he is one of these people that's like, uh, that is in like uniquely primed to interact with the special properties of this place and just like existing in this world. Uh, and I don't know if the show knows at this point yet that they're never going to do anything with Walt again or what. Um, but like, I don't hate that. It's winking towards that. I think what, uh, what makes me, uh, uh, scratch my head a little bit more it's like it's a little bit more of like the mystery of like 
we know that Locke is going to be on the island in 2007 and there's all these different strangers there and maybe they're going to be like nervous about him so like now we should be start like start uh we should start being afraid of the Ajira people things like that um but like the vision he's having is of the monsters of the man in black um so I don't know I think like part of it is just like to sort of like prime us for where the season is going and to do that through like a relatively reliable paranormal source like Walt. Um, But also I think like the scene just sort of exists to close the door on Walt of like, no, we're not going to bring him back into the show. He's been through enough. It feels like a meta comment from the show. It's not tremendously satisfying to me. I wish this scene was a little more satisfying than it is because it's it's Walton Locke and there just does feel like there is some sort of like cold detachment in here and I don't know quite where to pin it. A line read that I dislike, uh, a dialogue exchange that I don't particularly care for in this scene is like, um, is my father on the island and Locke saying, um... Last I heard, he was on a freighter near the island. Like, it just, like, yeah. feels, like, very, like, you know, read off a script and mechanical. And then also, it doesn't feel like a very John Locke thing to do, in my opinion, right? Like, I think the thing that Locke tells Michael, right, in season one is, like, you're treating him like a boy. You know, you should treat him, like, almost like a peer. And that doesn't feel like something John Locke would necessarily do with Walt. John Locke was was a pretty big truth teller. He was very candid with Walt a lot of time. In fact, he told Walt at one point, we're assuming, right, can I tell you a secret, that it, it feels like this is an odd misstep for him. Maybe, again, it's, it's Locke just sort of taking pity on him and saying, okay, well, you know, he's been through a lot. Let's not tell him that his poor dad is dead, too. But I agree. It's, it's a, the length of time in the conversation is interesting to me. And I do wonder, again, I don't know, like 316, if I have a solution as to how this could be a longer episode. I see a lot of points about this feeling a little rushed, like we just go from conversation to conversation. Not that I necessarily want to linger in these depressive states for very long, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, but this conversation feels lightning quick. Yeah, And I wonder if, to your point, it's more so to just serve a purpose, close off a character beat of, oh, yeah, there was Walt off the island, and Locke had a relationship with Walt, so, like, he should probably make mention of that, even if they have, like, a ten-line scene, and then they part ways forever. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Matthew Abaddon's gonna be like, why aren't you bringing him? And Locke's gonna be like, shut up. Stop talking to me. You're my driver. Um, well, he all, and he also has this theory, right, of, like, uh, you know, if I bring one of them, then the rest will come. I mean, he's not wrong ultimately but that's also really odd logic as well of like well everyone they all we all love each other so therefore if one of us wants to come surely the rest of them will want to come too it's not like one will have to be you know arrested one will have to be uh you know touched by jacob on his way to the airport another one will have to give up her child to get on board surely that won't happen at all yeah um all right so Locke is going to go and visit the next person on the list like if he's not going to get like the most logical person on the board and if Walt was not really an option anyway then let's go from the brain to the heart let's see about recruiting Hurley we're gonna go to Santa Rosa let's listen in sound number five hello Hugo So you didn't make it, huh? Pardon me? You didn't make it. It's cool. No biggie. 
You're not the first person to visit me, you know. What's up with the wheelchair? Uh, I broke my leg falling down a hole. Oh, is that how you died? Hugo, I'm not dead. Sure you're not. No, I, I promise you, I'm very much alive. Hey, Susie, am I talking to a dude in a wheelchair right now? Yep. Whoa, dude. What are you doing here? I need you to come back to the island with me. Wait. What? And not just you, but everybody who left. And Jack and Kate, everybody. I'm sorry, dude. I don't think that's going to happen. Jack's a doctor now. And... And son's like got her baby and Kate's got Aaron. Dude, be cool. Don't look, but we're being watched. Dude! Oh, don't worry, he's with me. What? He's just driving me around, he's okay. That dude is far from okay. When I first got locked up in here, he showed up claiming that he worked for Oceanic Air. He's evil! You should not be trusting that guy. Please, just listen to me. No, 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 I'm not listening to you. Hugo, please, listen. No, 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 no. Okay, just I want to go back in. It's okay. I want to go back in. Hugo. No, I'm not going anywhere with you. Go away. Bye. Bye. Get out of here. That went poorly. It didn't go well. <laughs> I, lo- I love the moment where Hurley's like, uh, he thinks everything's fine until he realizes that Locke isn't dead. And then he freaks know, out. It's, it's, just, great. It's, a, it's a fantastic commentary on like Hurley's reality where at this point right and how, yeah. how warped it is. Like, yeah, I just talk to dead people all the time. It's absolutely fine. Oh, wait a minute. You're alive? Oh, my God. What the hell? Yeah, uh, I love this scene from from Hurley. It's just this is a great location of where Hugo's at. Um, where yeah, like he is like he's like settling in. Like okay, so I guess my life is going to be talking to dead people here in Santa Rosa. Like at least I'll never be lonely, and I'm not going to be like in uh, immediately like mortal peril from the island. No one's expecting much from me. I can just retreat to this place. And then here comes John Locke, who is so. Uh, disruptive for so many reasons, one of which is he's not dead. It's just a, a great, great char- character beat. But yeah, he's just not ready. And like, it's going to take, I don't know, it's going to take like, it's going to take like some level of like, almost like unfamiliar kindness to push Hurley to where he needs to be. Like, he's going to need to like, mm-hmm. have like the kindness, like sort of like the, like the delicate touch of like, you know you're not supposed to be here from, like, the right person to whisper in his ears. Uh, and say what you will about Jacob, but he is going to be the guy who has the right touch for that. Uh, yeah, it's just not it, John Locke right now. Yeah, well, I think it, it also doesn't help. Like, I would say Locke at least has Hurley listening until Hurley sees Matthew Abaddon. And it's interesting, the way that this scene ends actually kind of mirrors the way the lie ends, right? With Hurley basically be like, nope, arrest me. I don't want to deal with Ben again. I'm definitely not going with him. Where you see a very similar behavior from Hurley, where I think when he sees Abaddon, he then jumps to conclusions of, okay, wait a minute. Locke's clearly representing some very bad people right now. I don't want to deal with this whatsoever. I'm not listening. La 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 la. So again, it's not even like a, not even like a Hurley's not ready for this conversation yet. More of a, 
oh no, Locke, you're in bed with the wrong people at this point, and I don't want to deal with the, you know, right. pe- people work because he doesn't know that that Abaddon was working for Winmore. But let's remember, he saw Matthew Abaddon say like, oh, I'm representing Oceanic Airlines, despite the fact that I have nothing proving that. And Hurley is he's a non-starter, you know, Matthew Abaddon. Yeah, he's for not Hurley. happy about that. Yeah, yeah, like he sees Abaddon and like any like anything that Locke could have done because like Locke doesn't fully grasp the situation. That's the thing. Again, like say what you will, Jacob at least like seemingly you know even like in the end like jacob it feels like jacob knows that the man in black is coming for him imminently it's almost like he he smells the end right like he he like when he's there in the chair when when uh when john loki and and benjamin linus walk into the four toed statue he's there and like he seems like a little bit scared at first and like a little bit like they found me but like also like he plays that scene as if like it is probably going to go one way. He'll do his thing. He'll try and like push it the other way, not very effectively, uh, but like he seems like resigned to it. He knows he knows the score right now. He knows that like it only ends once. Everything before that is progress. That like it's about to end uh, for himself. Um, Locke does not come to this situation with anything remotely resembling that level of clarity over like what's going on i think like again we talked before it's a totally different thing with this idea of like the have the confidence in your characters uh type of deal that's like the confidence within the characters that john locke in this moment he's striking out he's striking out he doesn't even know what a matthew abaddon really does yet uh he will find out soon um Maybe he has the line from him yet. I can't remember if that's coming up uh, where he's like, no, I'm, this, a, this, yeah, I'm a fixer. This, yeah. This, well, this is the, the, the scene right now. Where yeah, confronts right. him. He says, I help people get to where they need to go. Right. So he doesn't have that. So he's like, what's the deal with you? Like, why are people scared of you, man? Why do you kind of suck? He's like, are you really, are we going to keep like playing this game where you don't remember that I'm from, uh, that I'm the guy who sent you on the walk about? I help people get to where they need to get. That's what I do for, for Mr. Whitmore. Um, both uh, Abaddon and John Locke, it would appear, need to like work on their sales pitch. Uh, just, <laughs> just a touch. Um, anything from else from this part that you want to touch on before we move on into like a really uh, tough scene between Locke and Kate? No, I mean Hurley Saeed let Locke down relatively easy compared to what he's about to get into. So let's sort of like marinate in the good times, I suppose, because it really is going to go like, if it hasn't gone downhill for John Locke just yet, he's about to go down like the Marianas Trench in terms of the slope of this slide as he talks with Kate. The answer is no. Kate, I don't think you understand. No, you made yourself perfectly clear. Everyone on the island is going to die if I don't go back. And the answer is no. Why? Don't you care about them? Have you ever been in love, John? What? Think about you sometimes. I think about how desperate you were to stay on that island. And then I realized... It was all because you didn't love anybody. That's not true. I loved someone. Once. Her name was Helen. What happened? 
It just didn't work out. Why not, John? I was angry. I was... Obsessed. Look how far you've come. You know what? Uh, part of me loves this scene. Um, the way that John Locke talks about Helen for like the first time mm-hmm. in like the present, I think, you know, effect other than saying to Matthew, like, can you find Helen? Is like, it, it, it just didn't work out. And he does sort of like, you know, the Terry O'Quinn smile. And mm-hmm. it's just like smiling through the pain. Uh, is so sad, but like, like really like tragically beautiful. And especially like, um, because the most recent John Locke talking about Helen stuff, uh, in terms of the timeline, I think has been him talking to whoever fake Helen is on the phone and walkabout. So it's like, he's back. That was... Though though I do... Well, Locke does talk to Kate a little bit about this in the very beginning of season one, right? Like, I think he talks... He makes mention of Helen in walkabout, I want to say, like, when he... Remember when he gets knocked over and he says, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, And I think he alludes to Kate a little bit about who it is. But I agree. I think this is where we start to see Terry O'Quinn really come through in terms of his performance, I love the moment of him ruminating on like, you know, like you said, this is him. I think what we're about to get into is a portion of the episode that I really enjoy where he has been pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward. And he takes a second to finally focus on the past, which is really meaningful. And we get it here a bit that Kate sort of forces him to do where, you know, him saying things like it just didn't work out, saying he was angry and he was obsessed. Those are big moments for John Locke. Again, Locke is someone who we we know a lot about him, but the people on the island really didn't. We're, these are still people that didn't know he was in a wheelchair in the first place. Right. Uh, and, you know, he's he still is revealing a lot of his backstory that not everybody knows about. There's, there's a select few, like, only Sawyer knows about the whole Anthony Cooper stuff for example, out of this entire 815 group. And so I think it is a big deal for Locke to really lay himself bare right now to Kate and say, like, it's not true. I am not someone who is either incapable of love or, like, keeps love at an arm's length. I did it. I was broken in so many ways. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a person just like you. And then for Kate to respond of, look how far you've come, like, Damn, grab that aloe, because there's some burns coming his way. But I don't know. I kind of I, I kind of read uh some some empathy there. Uh like I I don't read it as like screw you, look how terrible you are. I read it as like like this poor, sad old man who like is still harping on about the island and like she's like not gonna go on with it. I think at first like there is there's like this real caustic quality to it. And then he starts talking about Helen. I think like the body language shifts a bit. Like, I think like you get the sense of her like being more engaged in the story. And I think like at first, if she's like, she's the fact that she's welcomed him into her home at all 
um he's like kind of lucky he watched she watched him uh you know she he killed naomi you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know this is a guy he kicked her out of she he sent her to egg town you know like you're in shell <laughs> like you know yeah. their interactions have not been pleasant uh of late and like he also you know most of their interactions have not been pleasant he lowered her into the hatch he said she's a fugitive uh you should be worried yeah. about her like you know no, like, the, the two the two of them have never seen eye to eye like jack has always been their sort of go between they went together on the enter 77 expedition but i feel like saeed was sort of their buffer as well they're sort of like the georgian lane i tried right? to like, i tried to they, vouch for you i tried to tell them you were a good person then they told me what you did uh like and then he like leaves her there in the barracks and they gas her like you know like they're 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 recent relationship at the very <laughs> least has not been super great so if she's like gonna take some shots at him i don't think it's fully unwarranted but then when he starts like taking it in the direction like you see this like the sadness of like of a guy who missed out like you see the sadness of a guy who like uh who who went left when like and and like every day since he's been like i probably should have gone right or like maybe can't even voice mm. that, uh, and like she smells that on him. I think, and I think a way in which this intersects with, um, you know, when when you do this nuclear option style, this episode comes after whatever happened happened, and so much of that is like dealing with similar stuff with Kate and how so many people like kind of like foist upon her that like her whole reason for doing everything is because she needed to like nurse her wounded heart from Sawyer, which Mm. I think that the episode, at least my read on that one always has been like, I think like Kate's final moment is like, screw that narrative. That's not why I'm going back. I'm going back for Claire. I'm going back for Aaron Um, is really, really powerful. But like where she is in the story in this moment in time and in the life and death of Jeremy Bentham is not terribly far away from like, how Cassidy is going to keep telling Kate, like, you took Aaron because Sawyer did what Sawyer does. He left you. He couldn't do it. You're wounded. So, like, she's kind of, like, throwing a little bit of that back at John. Um, it's interesting the way these these episodes connect. I think this scene plays uh, a lot more linearly in the other order. Um, but here, like, I still get, like, when Kate is at her best... It's like she's listening to a person and she like kind of like reflects some of that back of just like, look how far you've come. It's just like such a sad thing. It's just like a sad moment. It's really savage, you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but at the same point, like she's really just holding up a mirror of like, look how far you've come. Yeah. Well, it also doesn't help that Locke does not start the conversation off on the right note. I love that we start by with Kate saying no, but for Locke's argument to be, well, don't you care about everyone on the island is a terrible approach for anyone, let alone Kate, right? Like, you know that Locke's trying to push that Sawyer button. Uh, oh, I saw Sawyer. Uh, you know, don't don't you want to go back for your boy toy? I'm sure he unfortunately was kind of coming in from that angle, and she was very much pushing up against that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, he leaves, and he's furious with Matthew Abbott. I'm like, how have you not found Helen? I need to see Helen. He's like, uh, well, I have found Helen. He takes him. He takes him to Santa Monica, where. Helen's grave uh, is located. She died of a brain aneurysm on April 8th, 2006. I, uh, again, it's tough to say I love this scene because, again, it's, it's a scene that just makes me feel terrible because this is such, you know, I think there there is some reservations for Locke not jumping to conclusions, but, you know, after this and then the Jack scene immediately going and getting that that wire you know, and it's tough. It's tough to say, like, oh, that's jumping to things too quickly because that is 
the terrible thing about depression and suicide is that it ha- it puts your brain to the most extreme, makes you think to do drastic things, you have to do them right now in that moment. It hyperbolizes each and every encounter that you make. But this is a key step, I think, to that that action before he ends up nearly taking that step off the table because he has been losing all the connections he thought he had off the island, right? Everyone he knew from 815 has now, with the exception of Saeed, sort of like courteously turned him away. And Jack is going to outwardly tell him, stay out of my life. The one person he had a connection with, because Anthony Cooper's dead, who the hell knows what happened to Swoozy Kurtz? Eddie sold him out. But there was always Helen. There was always this person that represented, yes, maybe a, a John Locke that he doesn't necessarily want to look back to, but like someone he genuinely cared about. And now she's gone. Yeah. And it's almost like the final tether that was, I think, connecting John Locke to this outside world is gone. Kate isn't particularly wrong when she said one reason he wants to stay on the island is, is you know, because maybe he doesn't necessarily have people in the outside world who he can care for. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was all because you don't love anybody, because he makes that point uh, to contest that. But I think that this is this is maybe a sign to John of like, God, it's brutal to say this world isn't for you yeah. right now. The world has moved on. John yeah. Locke, yeah. why don't you? It's tough. Uh, she loved me. Uh, we could have been together. Uh, and Matthew Avedon says uh, that wouldn't have changed anything. She'd still be gone. Uh, Helen is where she's supposed to be, and your path leads back to the island. Uh, and Locke says, you say that like it's inevitable. Uh, and uh, Matthew Avedon tells John, like, well, Richard Alpert told me uh, well, Charles told me that Richard Alpert said, you're going to die. Is that inevitable or is that a choice? Locke's like, why would that be a choice? Uh, so it's like uh, a really uh, uh, powerful final conversation with Matthew Abaddon before he gets shot. Uh, not closing. shocked. <laughs> yeah, shot, not shocked. Uh, and it's, the, it's a curtain call for the incredible Lance Reddick in a role that I wish that they had been able to expand upon, but for many reasons we're not able to, as Matthew Abaddon just gets murdered uh, <laughs> by the car. So let's, let's talk about that. So what did you think about the choice to bring Abaddon back? Obviously, if we go down that different path... Uh, it would probably be inevitable that Abaddon dies, but we get much more background than we do, you know, him appearing in the first two episodes of season four and then Cabin Fever. Do you like the way they bring back and deploy Matthew Abaddon for his his final bout here? Um, you know, I definitely wish we got the world where he was more of a character, but I just I love the actor so much. I've loved him since Oz. Uh, he's uh, next level in The Wire. He's terrific mm-hmm. on on Fringe. Even though even there, like he's a little bit limitedly used. Um, I just I think Lance Reddick is such a talent. Uh, so even getting like just a few episodes with him on the show. I'll take that over none. Uh, and one thing that that does, you know, mostly work because it's an actor availability thing. It's not like this is a guy who was locked into a series regular contract the way that they are going to do uh, for Ilana in the final season <laughs> where they have a lot of time to like make that choice. Here he's like, they were able to get him back for an episode. So it's like, all right, mm-hmm. we'll bring you back. We'll give you some measure of resolution. We'll kill you. Uh, so <laughs> we'll kill you. Uh, so that is going to be <laughs> an audience of one. Uh, so that is going to 
going to be like a thing that they're going to do with the character here. So like it serves like the moment of shock, uh, not shot, but also shot. It it has this like really powerful intensity behind it um, that like leads to like the immediate urgency of like John Locke now having to like hit the car, get on the road with his broken leg. Um, you know, John Locke dies. Is this it? Is it happening now? Like it's very, very scary. So I think like, in service of that tension and knowing that they know they're not going to be able to bring the character back at some point in time, they've probably moved on to a large extent of like, what were they going to do with that character? They've offloaded elsewhere, whether it's like Richard or other characters. Um, the Abaddon energy has been um, reset in a different direction. Uh, so I think it ultimately works totally fine for me. Mm-hmm. I love the alternate world where he's more of a character, but in the reality that we get where Lance Reddick is only available to come back for this one-off i think it's totally fine i agree i think this was the best they could possibly do with the character given the circumstances and i like the use of him in this episode because as i said again john locke's tethers are being cut everyone he has like an emotional connection to the story of john locke is that he doesn't have many people out there in 2007 who he can like really connect with right is he gonna go find his old buddy from the box factory he doesn't really have many friends or loved ones i think abanon serves as this like fun mystical element from a part of john's life and yes it's not he's not exactly uh he's not helen obviously but he's not even on like a friendly level that he's popped up in a recurring basis but it's clear that this guy meant a lot to John Locke in the way that he convinces him to go down this path and, and go on this walkabout and put him on that plane in the first place. So I like bringing him back here because it's reintroducing that element of fate and destiny into Locke's life, right? And that's going to be Abaddon's final words is talking about the inevitability of fate uh, and, you know, different paths that we're on. That's going to be a big theme moving forward with whatever happened, happened, even though John Locke will not necessarily be a part of that. I like introducing that element. Yes, I would have liked if their relationship had been built out a bit more, but for what he represents, I like the fact that he not only pops up into John Locke's life, but also dies, right? Like, what does it mean that he imparts these words to John Locke and then gets killed? The immediate circumstances are, oh man, he's dead. Someone's going to kill me. I got a GTFO and crash into a billion cars. But then there's also this idea, I think, of like maybe what Abaddon is standing for either dies as well or like lives on through that legacy. I'd like to believe the former because, you know, when uh, or maybe I don't know with that whole idea of is it that inevitable or a choice? And Locke shrugs it off saying, how could you possibly think that's a choice considering what he's going to do? I wonder, are Abaddon's words echoing in his head at that point, or is it more so that, like, that point dies alongside Abaddon, and he realizes without even, you know, thinking about it, that there is indeed a choice when it comes to dying? Yeah. I don't know. If Abaddon's whole thing is, I get people going to where they need to go, you know, uh, there's a lot that you on there, for sure. Um, Locke gets in an awful car accident. It's awful. Yeah, there's a whole, uh, the Lost on Location for this episode is all about this car crash. And they do this really cool thing, like, I'm a, you know, simpleton who doesn't know much (laughs) Hollywood magic. Uh, But there's something cool that they do is to simulate uh, when the car, like, nearly T-bones lock. They actually have to have the car reverse, and Terry O'Quinn has to basically act in reverse. Like, he was in the car crash, but then, like 
almost like re- rewinds himself out of it, and then it's just regularly sitting at the steering wheel. It's it's yet another interesting, cool thing that Terry O'Quinn gets to flex in his toolbox. But yeah, he gets royally wrecked up here. Wrecked, wrecked. Uh, when he wakes up, he's in a hospital. And there is a familiar presence. Indeed, the last person he's trying to see is here to see him. Let's listen in. Sound seven. What are you doing here? Jack, how did you find me? You were in a car accident. You were brought into my hospital. What are you doing here? We have to go back. Of course. Of course we do. Jack, the people I left behind need our help. We're supposed to go back. Because it's our destiny. How many times are you going to say that to me, John? How can you not see it? Of all the hospitals they could have brought me to, I end up here. You don't think that's fate? Your car accident was on the west side of Los Angeles. You being brought into my hospital isn't fate. John, it's probability. You don't understand. It wasn't an accident. Somebody is trying to kill me. Why? Why would someone try to kill you? Because they don't want me to succeed. They want to stop me. They don't want me to get back because I'm important. Have you ever stopped to think that these delusions that you're special aren't real? That maybe there's nothing important about you at all. Maybe you are just a lonely old man that crashed on an island. That's it. Goodbye, John. Your father says hello. What? A man? The man who told me to move the island? The man who told me how to bring you all back? He said to tell his son hello. It couldn't have been Saeed's father, and it wasn't Hurley's. That leaves you. He said his name was Christian. My, my father is dead. Well, he didn't look dead to me. He died in Australia three years ago. I put him in the coffin. He's dead. Jack, please, you have to come back. You're the only one who can convince the rest of them. You have to help me. You're supposed to help me. John, it's over. It's done. We left, and we were never important. So you... You leave me alone. And you leave the rest of them alone. Okay. I don't know if this is a hot take. But let me admit, I don't like that Locke says we have to go back. Oh, okay. Why? I, it just feels like then it sort of backfills this idea of like, well, Jack took it from Locke. Yeah, but he's, you know, like, we've in, already seen that he's done that, right? We saw that in the season four finale where he's like, we have to lie. You have to lie. We have to lie. So it's like yeah, sort of like the, Jack's MO is to just rip off Locke. <laughs> to just, yeah, it's just when in Rome. Uh, yeah, maybe just because like that's such an iconic line. I, I don't know if I like the idea of, oh, yeah, it actually came from John Locke. He was the one to say it. It's almost like if, you know, uh, if Anthony Cooper told Locke, don't tell me what I can and can't do, then it's like, oh, okay, well, then 
that sort of robs the character of coming up with that iconic moment. You know, maybe it's just because the line is such a big deal that I don't know if I like that it actually came from somebody else. It's not a Jack Shepard original. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I could be convinced either way. It doesn't really land with me. I was listening to it just now. It's like, oh yeah, he says that. Uh, it took it's me the first second. thing he tells him. <laughs> yeah. We have to go back. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the scene though is really, really upsetting. Uh, mm-hmm. oh, incredibly so. Yeah. I mean, Jack is OTT in so many ways. And I think like, I don't, I, I can't say like, oh yeah, well from Jack's perspective, it makes so much sense. I think we know from something nice back home, right. That like, this is a very emotionally turbulent Jack. Uh, this is only going to be, I think, a few days from where we see him in Through the Looking Glass, despite the discrepancy in facial hair, unless he's got some, like, hair tonic back there, a la Looney Tunes, uh, to grow his beard out, that, like, Jack is in post-something-nice-back-home. He's a little washed up. He's a little on edge. If Locke knew that, maybe he wouldn't mention his dead dad. Yeah. But I think, uh, is there... Is there a, a uh, is there a degree to which to connect this all the way back to White Rabbit and a very early observation on Lost of yours of John Locke as this father surrogate? And we talked about this last week too. Is like he needs to come back. He's like kind of like energetically occupying this role of your dad. Mm. Um, is this like? Like, Jack was able to bury his father in a manner of speaking. He was able to eulogize him. He was able to give him the funeral, but he never quite got the closure he wanted because you never quite get the closure you want in these situations. And so, Mm. like, he, like, you know, publicly gives, you know, the relatively kind, like, rest in peace eulogy. And is this the, like, the other, like, unspoken piece of it that's like, no, screw you, dad. Like, I'm still dealing with Ooh. all of this shit that you've left me with. Like, is he, like, is he, ra- like, especially when, like, the specter of Christian Shepherd is evoked here, is he railing against his father in this moment? It's a really great point, considering Paging that. Dr. This- Freud. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a moment of parental pushback, right, where Locke is telling him to do something, Jack's telling him no. It's almost like the uh, the flashback to all the best daddies, right? When Christian Shepherd's like, "Oh, you have to do this," and Jack says, "No, you know, for for my own moral compass, I can't do that." Here, Locke is this guy showing up in his life, and yes, Jack did take his advice, and he's starting to maybe regret uh, the choice that he make made in leaving. But here, Locke comes saying, "Like, all right, now you've got to do this," and Jack is saying, "No." I still, despite me realizing we have to lie, I still disagree with everything you're standing for and you trying to push things onto me. I think even outside of that parental stuff, him bringing up Christian, I totally resonate with what you said about how I think Jack feels like he, I think one of the reasons why the Christian funeral scene in There's No Place Like Home is so haunting is that I think Jack feels like he does get closure and then Carol Littleton shows up right. and opens that coffin back up right. and like takes out the hinges so it can't close. And so I think Jack is really serving this tempestuous maelstrom where he's constantly trying to put that in the past. And then when John Locke tells him this frankly ridiculous thing of how, oh, I talked to your dad, uh, you know, despite the fact that he's dead, it just sends Jack into a blind rage because this is something he has been trying again and again, to just put behind him, and he can't. His dad shows up in every corner Everywhere. of his life. Yeah, he can't get and away from so, him. 
And so in that moment, it's even less so about, like, Jack railing against Locke and more so Jack, like, railing at, I defy you, stars. Like, I'm so angry at the powers that be for constantly bringing Christian Shepard into my life here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... And then the idea of, like, a lonely old man that crashed on an island, I think he's speaking to sort of both of them, right, in that moment. Yes, yeah, and I I think that, like, one of the things that makes this episode really, really hard is the ways in which, like, you know, what Kate said to Locke, what Jack is going to say here to Locke, um, and how Locke is going to absorb this. He's going to just absorb these as crushing defeats. And, like, for, you know, as much as, like, Jack's journey is going to be about Locke was right, um, the the tragedy of John Locke and his final waking moments, so much of the energy, not all of it, much of the energy is going to be spent on... Jack is right. I am pathetic. I am a loser. I'm not worth anything. I wish he'd believed me, but this is what Richard said, and maybe this will do it, but maybe not. Either way, the misery will be over. Like, you know, however you want to interpret the next scene, um, you know, and like, if, like, if you want to like take some, uh, comfort in like, at least in his final, final moments before the I don't understand, he thinks that they've got another shot. He thinks that like, okay, I have been at least cold comfort that, but we have something resembling a plan. Um, But I think the thing that like, I don't know if it's comfort or if it's just different context, but like a lot of the shit that people are slinging at John Locke in this episode, they're slinging at themselves really. You you know, John Locke is like the sad, like meat puppet that's like shock absorbing (laughs) all of this psychic trauma from like Jack is screaming at himself. He's not screaming at Locke and poor Locke just like is like that like mortal vessel that has to like uh, contain uh, Jack's rage and being only human Locke is going to filter that through himself and reflect on that in ways that are very painful and I think lead us in many ways to to where we ultimately go with the character. Well, it's it's what Sawyer says in Exodus, right? Like you beat a, a dog, dog yeah. enough times he's going to believe he did something wrong. Right. And not to say that John Locke is without fault here, but I absolutely agree that I think with a lot of these characters especially at the time we see them here in 2007, it's one finger pointing at him and four fingers pointing back at themselves. Uh, You know, especially Jack saying, we left and we were never important. Uh, It's a big line for many reasons. First, this is maybe one of the cases why this episode should come after 316 is because I guess this does jut up nicely with everything Jack does in 316 to get them back to the island. But it's this idea that I think Jack is sort of reconciling everything that happened that he thought you know they were brought together not necessarily for a big reason as Locke was alluding to but like considering the connections that they had from that have now fallen apart to this point Jack basically feels just like entirely miserable not to the way that John Locke was but I think certainly self-medicating in his own way I mean actually now let me take that back because what does Jack do in the beginning of Through the Looking Glass right like what was he about to do on that bridge right he's not he's not in a position that's completely different from John Locke here where you just feel like your world and everything you believe in about that world is collapsing around you everything has turned on you and it's a, it's an absolutely crushing feeling and i think it's it's weird to say it's understandable that this is what drives Locke to do what he does but again like i think not only was it that jack was the last person he talked to but specifically the language that jack used for him 
was the most crushing blow. It wasn't just, you know, Hurley saying, oh, you're working with bad people. It's not Saeed saying, well, actually, I had a really great time off the island. Jack is undressing everything that John Locke stands for. He says, you were never important. You have delusions. Uh, you know, you there is no such thing as coincidence. He is tearing into each and everything that John Locke has believed in since he went on the island with a couple of exceptions. He's, he's tearing at who he is. And so I think it makes sense from that sort of perspective to lead Locke to where he is. That essentially, Jack has eviscerated his essence as a person. And that can be terrifying and it can be mortifying for, as you mentioned, like this is a moment where we imagine between these scenes, Locke sort of like looks at himself and says like, yeah, I think Jack was right. You know, how often have I listened to my gut, listened to myself and where has it gotten me? I have a broken leg away from the place where I was meant to be, where the people I work with are basically spitting in my face and calling me a disgrace of a person. I I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. They're right. Everything I've worked for is a lie. I, I see that tragic set of footprints to lead him to where he wants to go. Now, look, would I have wanted to see a little bit more of like, you know, what gets him to that point? Yes, it feels like a bit of an abrupt cut from this to what happens next. But I can I can trace it logically why this Jack conversation is the one to send him over the edge, as it were, because this feels so distinctly different, not only from a relationship perspective, but a material perspective than any of the conversations previous. So it does take us to where we go next, to the Westerfield Hotel. John will write the note, Jack, I wish you had believed me. Um, he throws the Widmore phone in the trash, does not press 23. Um, he is going to set everything up. He's got the, the cable. He sets yeah, up and the this noose. Is, this is true to Locke, too, right? They're like, of course, he would have some sort of like semi-encyclopedic knowledge about getting the cord and right, tying it in right. this specific knot. It feels very John locke to be like, I'm going to go through it this specific way. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, yeah, it's terrible. He's going to do it. Then there will be a knock at the door. Uh, which will lead to, uh, I think it's going to be like a nearly five-minute audio clip that mm-hmm. we are about to listen to. Uh, you know what you're getting into. This is this is the thing. We'll spare you like the final, final, final piece of it, uh, <laughs> but we will get pretty close to that moment. Uh, let's listen in as Ben walks in to the motel room with John Locke. John? John? John, what are you doing? Wait, please. John, stop. How did you find me? I have a man watching Saeed. I'm watching all of them. Keeping them safe. When you turned up, he called me. Who? <laughs> What are you doing here? John, just calm down. What do you want from me? Please, let me... Answer the question! I'm trying to protect you. Protect me. You shot him. You killed Abaddon. Yes. Yes, I did. But it was only a matter of time before he tried to kill you. I was just trying to get to you. 
But you drove off and crashed. Why? Why would he was working for Charles Widmore? He's extremely dangerous. No! Widmore came to me. He saved me. No, Johnny used you. He waited till you showed up so that you could help him get to the island. Charles Widmore is the reason I moved the island. So that he could never find it again. To keep him away so that you could lead. You can't do this. If anything happens to you, John, you have no idea how important you are. Let me help you. There is no helping me. I'm... I'm a failure. No, John, you're not. I am! I couldn't get any of them. I couldn't get a single one of them to come back with me. I can't lead anyone. Jack booked a ticket. A plane ticket from Los Angeles to Sydney tonight. Return trip first thing in the morning. Whatever you said to him, John, it worked. And if you got Jack, you can get the rest of them. John, you can't die. You've got too much work to do. We've got to get you back to that island so that you can do it. Please, John. We can do this, John. You haven't even been to Sun yet. Let's start with her. No. I... I promised Jin that I wouldn't bring her back. Jin is alive? Yeah. Yeah, but he didn't want her to know. He, he wanted me to tell her that, it, that his body washed up on the beach. And uh, he gave me his wedding ring to prove it. All right. Promise is a promise. Thank you. You're welcome. Come on. Let's go. I know we can do this. Once we can get them all in the same place. I don't know where we go from there, but we'll figure something out. I know where we go. There's a woman here in Los Angeles. A woman? Yeah. I don't know exactly where, but 
She shouldn't be that hard to find. Her name is is uh, Eloise Hawking. Eloise Hawking. You sure? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why? Do you know her? Yes, John. I know her. And then he kills him. Yeah, so we just spare. Let's not. We don't need that. <laughs> we don't, no. I don't need so that. Let me, let, need let me that. ask Josh, because I, I, I still think that the most evil thing Ben Linus has ever done is the genociding of the Dharma Initiative. We talked about that during the, the Man Behind the Curtain. But is this the most malicious thing this is, Ben Linus yeah, has ever done? This is, this is trash. Uh, Benjamin Linus is trash. This is disgusting. Like, this is just so horrible. The whole thing is just so such like such such a miserable display of humanity. Um, yeah, because because it really shows that it's it's just such a such, it's the rug pull to end all rug pulls from an emotional perspective, not even from a twist perspective. Because here Ben is literally talking Locke not off the ledge because if he steps off the ledge, then something happens. But essentially telling him like your life matters. I need you. You know your your life. You being alive is, is you know wholly important to me. And then two minutes later, Ben kills him himself. When it's it's literally he just needs him alive long enough to know uh, like uh, like any valuable information that's going to yep. get him to where he needs to go next. And so like the second that he says, I'm looking for Eloise Hawking, that's enough of a lead that now Ben can like milk his sources of like Eloise Hawking is here. She's somebody who's like connected to like getting everybody back to the Island. I can find her. And also um, by killing John Locke, that may like be like bait that I can keep my eyes open to like, see who comes after me. Like there's a world in which, uh, Eloise Hawking like reaches out to Ben or like reaches out because Locke is dead and Ben is able to like pounce via that. You know what I mean? Like by Locke being dead, she's exposed, he finds her, things like that. Um, it's all a game. It's all ruthless manipulation. It's this man who's just like tirelessly, fiercely devoted to getting back to the island at this point for um, the really all of the selfish reasons he wants to go back he wants to be judged either kill me and be done with it island or forgive me and i will resume all of the things i was meant to do it's it's really awful it's really really awful that this man is in such obvious pain and like this is how he meets that situation is what he does to lock um it is it is i think it i think it's the worst thing we ever really see ben do on the I think show. it's the well because it's the most hands-on thing, right? Like we can certainly talk about all the innocent people who died in the Dharma Initiative. Him showing Julia like, Goodwin's body is still pretty trash as well. That's pretty like, effed up. We could also talk about uh, even last week all the innocent people that he doesn't care about killing on Ajira three one six. But here, this is like him manipulating a very specific relationship to get what he wants. You know what he's essentially doing? He is milking John Locke, and then he is murdering the cow is what he is. He's essentially saying like, all right, don't kill yourself now. Cause I need to get a couple of facts out of you. I need to do, ask a couple of questions and you're good. So I guess to that point, because let's sort of map out Ben's logic through this, because we certainly got some questions about like, if Ben wants Locke dead, why did he just not let him, you know, why did he just let him kill himself in the first place? Because he needs, he needs information from Locke. He expects that Locke is running around, connected to Widmore. What does he know? He doesn't want him to just die with that information intact. He needs to get the information. Yeah, and I also think, so to your point, do you believe that Ben 
approaches Locke with the intention to kill him all along? Or do you think that's like a, oh, here's all this information. Well, no, we we can't let you get away with that, John. You're going to have to die, as it were. Yeah, I don't know. I think like, I kind of feel like he, is there a world where he keeps him alive and it's better to have him in his pocket for everything? I think that Locke has always been so competitive. And like every time we've ever seen somebody uh, propose like any kind of like direct adversarial challenge to Ben's leadership uh, and like, you know, his like his masculinity, right? Like Mm -hmm. he has he has responded to that in harshest of measures whether it's, uh, you know, this war against Widmore or now killing Locke. That I, I just don't think that, like, especially after all of, like, Locke is special, Locke is special, you are not. There's just no world where he's not just going to kill him. But he, he's gonna, I agree. He's going to prime him for everything he's got, but John Locke is going to be more useful as, uh, as a prop uh, than he is as a human. He's going to be more useful as uh you know like the the veritable beating stick that ben uses to like uh surprise somebody and then he like unleashes it and kicks your ass with it like Locke's death Locke as uh as uh, a martyr is going to be more useful to ben getting the people he needs to get back than keeping him alive we saw how yep. effective he was at getting people to want to go back It'll be faster this way, and it's probably going to be a little bit more satisfying for Ben to some extent to to kill this guy who everyone seemed to worship when Ben was right here the whole time. Why aren't you worshiping me? I think in Ben's mind, Locke works better as a concept than a person. I think right. he figures, if I kill John Locke, I can now spin this narrative of, and I don't know if he assumes that, like, if he knows that everyone turned him down, right? I guess he's finding out in this moment that uh, Locke got denied by everybody. But this is, he can certainly use this as a piece, as you were. Again, another piece on the board for him to be like, well, Locke is dead, but he told me this. Uh, you know, he can certainly manipulate the death of John Locke to use it to his liking, which, again, is going to make makes the ending exciting in theory of, like, okay, if this really is John Locke, well, what are people going to do when they have the knowledge of what Ben did, considering how much he was able to convince Jack in particular of like, look what John Locke's death has done. You know, what does this mean to you? I think that him being able to speak on Locke's behalf works so much more from a manipulation perspective than like the efforts of actually having to manipulate uh, a person as well. And yeah, I agree that I think there is a little bit of like, Ben thinks of everything as a zero-sum game, as a game of attrition, a war between two parties. Uh, Not only would this be him getting one over on Locke, who has bested him in the island leader department, this is arguably also him getting one over on Charles Widmore right now. Because I think one of the reasons why Ben takes out Abaddon, right, is because he believes that Locke is under his tutelage. Here, this is wiping another Widmore guy off the map, this just happens to be a guy that Ben has a very, very complicated relationship with. Yeah. Shall we talk about how this is the death of John Locke now? It's a big, big deal. And I'm I'm actually surprised, like, in retrospect, Terry O'Quinn gives it to us. And I don't think he knew, again, that this would be, like, the ultimate end of John Locke. But you could almost see it in his performance. There's that moment 
where he gets down from the table and he starts to cry. In my my read is that like I think the gravity of what he's about to do finally catches up to him, which I can sadly speak from experience that when you have those thoughts and like when reality finally hits you, like it hits you emotionally. And I think you sort of realize standing up against the edge of things, like how much you were careening over that surface and like what might've been on the other side. It's a scary thought. It's scary. It's an emotional buildup for Locke as well. I think he's finally releasing everything that's happened to him over the past few days. But like, God, he gives it to us so much in this scene. Even, even if he and the first time viewers do not know, this is John Locke's final scene watching it back. It still feels like that. And that's because of Terry O'Quinn's performance. There are ways in which this scene is, is just like the John Locke journey. uh, One last time in like one Mm. fell swoop. Like there are ways in which, this feels like him howling to the heavens, pounding on the hatch door. I've done everything you wanted me to do. So why won't you do this for me? Or why did you do this to me? And then the light comes on from, from Desmond. uh, And in this, the light comes on from Ben telling him Jack booked a ticket. You know, it worked. It's working. You can still do this. It's not over. Um, And then as things always happen for John Locke, like, it's one step forward, two steps back. And mm-hmm. it's always like one great eureka that leads to something mystifying of like, okay, I'm in the hatch. Wait, I just have to push a button. I don't understand. Well, this is very big. I don't understand energy uh, as the monster will relay uh, to Ben later on in um, the season six premiere when he, you know, reveals what John Locke was thinking uh, in his final moments on, on, on earth, on this mortal coil. Um, so it's 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 awful. It's really really awful. But like, if you are going to like uh, like if you're going to like kind of like look at it in terms of like the top down John Locke journey, I think it's 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 of a piece with so much that we've seen with the character before. Like, I think that there is this sort of Deus Ex Machina energy. This is just like kind of like this is the really dark version of that. And the light mm-hmm. that's going to come on is now going to be like the the light that John's absence shines for so many of the characters moving forward, specifically Jack, uh, and like how that is going to fuel the remainder of the show and how that is going to fuel the actions of uh, the characters as they barrel towards the end of the line here. Um, he will not be around to see it. And it's 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 terrible. It's it's yeah. really, really awful. It's it's interesting because like you said, there is this sort of like happy ending to it to it all, happily ever after, if you will, that does come in season six, right? Where we are gonna see quote unquote John Locke proper. He's gonna have his ability to reunite with everybody. Uh then he'll find out, you know, what his words really did. But it is horrifying in this moment to see how this happens because like you said this is the story of john locke and it is incredibly sad and tragic and again another reason why this episode sticks with me in a a bad way from an emotional perspective is like this idea of john locke for the first five episodes of this season was really on top he was in control of the others and even when he wasn't he got to walk in like he owned the place he seemed to like have control of what was happening And then he comes here, he's shut down, he's brought down to the lowest status, 
And then even when he thinks a friend is offering him a helping hand, he gets stabbed in the side yeah. and bleeds out and dies. And it is it's it's something that sticks with you. This idea that John Locke, who represents this character who sees as demented as it is, like all this hope in the world because he has experienced none. He is this Job-like journey of constantly being pushed back. Like you said, one step forward, two steps back. Whenever a good opportunity presents itself, a bad one is around the corner to tear him down. He has to have optimism because that's the only thing that keeps him stepping forward. It's the only thing that doesn't have him doing what he attempts to do here earlier on in his life. And again, that is sadly relatable to me. And so to then have that attitude promptly snuffed out to be used as just like a pawn in a larger scheme of somebody that this tragic, misunderstood, tempestuous roller coaster of a life that you lead. The end of the ride does not come to a firm stop and, you know, the, the seatbelts come up and you realize, like, wow, that was a wacky ride, but I enjoyed it at the end of it. No, the ride gets cut short, the track runs short, the cart runs off of it, and it explodes. It's, it's a brutal, brutal way to end this character who we thought, much like all these other characters, was on his path to having that happy ending. And right now, that ending was far from happy, especially because... All it was used for. It had a purpose, but that purpose was so paltry in just to use as a crutch, for lack of a better term, to get other people to come back. You know, there is meaning, I suppose, and I suppose maybe Locke would get an appreciation out of that. But otherwise, like, John Locke did not die surrounded by loved ones. He did not have these brave, emotional, final words to all the people that surrounded him. He died alone. He died surprised. He died confused. And that is maybe the most tragic thing of all. Yeah. Unfortunately, that happens. Yep. Um, that's, that's the thing as well. It's, it's a, again, that cold splash of water right about. And especially looking back on the Jack stuff as well. Like when you look at that conversation, there is certainly a relatability. There are, I'm sure, plenty of people out there who like had a knockdown drag out fight with somebody and that was the last conversation right. they ever had with them. Right. And like that sticks with them. And we talked about that in 316. The thing that this death does is it is one of those first deaths and loss that is so like abrupt and cold and dark. I mean, compare this to Charlie's death in Through the Looking Glass, right? Which like has a poetry built into it. A song plays. There's this big choice that happens, this big heroic moment. That does not happen for John Locke. And it's a it's a stark reminder, even compared to like what happens with the characters moving forward, there is no death on the show that is like John Locke yeah. in, in terms of in terms of tone. And I think that's very meaningful. Um you know, I think the thing for me, because it's a character who is so complicated and a character who I who I really, really, really love. Uh I love Terry O'Quinn's work as this character and I feel the pain, the howling, open, wounded pain of John Locke very deeply and the feelings of failure that are associated with his entire existence. Uh, and I do mean his entire existence all the way through the end of the line. Um, that, like, life and death is not 
a clean experience and it also isn't linear and there mm-hmm. are there are ways in which you are alive after you're not uh and i think that i do find power in that side of the story for john Locke, which is like everything that's going to come next with that character as we talk about him uh like the remain yeah he, he he still has work to do in a manner he's still he's still alive because he's alive with other people and like you know whatever like you whatever like you know religious beliefs you ascribe to or just like your personal philosophies in in life you know i am you know pretty agnostic uh, myself but like i assign meaning to relationships and i assign meaning mm-hmm. to our collective experiences and the impact we leave on people and that those are the ways in which we can achieve if not immortality then certainly um we can uh we can achieve um legacy legacy uh, and I think that the, you know, we're talking about the life and death of Jeremy Bentham, and therefore we're talking about the life and death of John Locke, but the legacy lives on for a very long time. And I think that in so many ways, the, um, the character's existence beyond his, uh, his like flesh and blood, uh, existence in the show, like his continued participation as a walking, talking, moving, thinking character on the island. I think that the next phase of John Locke is just as important as Boar Hunter John, as Button Pushing mm-hmm. John, um, as, you know, as Sweat Lodge Building John, as Pot Farmer <laughs> John. Like, I think that um, the, you know, strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Obi-Wan Kenobi, John Locke is a critical character to the end game of the show. And what it fills me with is for like the people in my life that I did not get closure with, you know, people who are gone. Um, yeah. Of, of which there are, you know, people's faces and names are coming to mind instantly right now. Uh, and like ways in which like we didn't settle up and ways in which I feel like I, I did wrong and I'll never get to make up for it. Um, in this life is in, in, in that, like in that exchange, like that it's morphed, it's different now. And, all I can do is is try and uh, channel the ways in which their impact and their and their memory remains uh, alive in what I do next. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that being a piece of the John Locke story and therefore a piece of the Lost story, which at its core is not about this magic island where what are the others and what are the whispers and what is the monster, but it's a show about who are we. Let me find out. That's what Lost is about. Uh, I think that having a story like this filtered through a character of the size and scale and importance of of John Locke, a core character, a capital M-A-I-N character, uh, (laughs) to have that filtered through him, for me, has been a powerful thing. Uh, yeah. and has been like a very important piece of why I I love this show, even with some of the wobbliness that is still to come in the end game. I think it all comes back to relationships. Uh, it's actually very prescient timing in that an episode of the X-Files I happened to watch last week had a character named Melissa Scully, Dana Scully's sister, uh, who 
Spoiler alert, if you don't want to know anything about The X-Files, which I've been watching for the first time, tune ahead a little bit of time. I'm still going to give you some time to get out of here before The X-Files spoilers comes out. Melissa Scully is dead, but there is a scene in an episode where Dana Scully has a flashback talking with her sister, and she speaks about, this is a moment where Dana Scully talks about, like, she is uh, leaving the medical profession to go to Quantico, to essentially, like, become part of the the FBI. And she's wondering about, you know, am I taking the wrong path here? And Melissa Scully verbalizes this really interesting viewpoint that I never really thought about before of, like, in the path that is your life's journey, you never know who you'll come into contact with, you know, uh, who you will be affected by, and conversely, who you will affect. Who you are coming with and who you are leaving with. Exactly. And so that's... Oh my God, I'm getting emotional. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's I mean, that's... that's it's, it's something that, like, has... I mean, again, I'll, I'll be frank. Uh, that that has, was a thought that took me back from the edge. Yeah. Back when, you know things were rougher than they were. Uh, I I have certainly had thoughts about like that this is it. Uh I I don't I I don't I can't be here anymore. Nobody wants me around here anymore. I what good am I doing here? It I'd be better if I left, as it were. And it took, you know, uh some brilliant words from my brilliant wife and also this sort of verbalization of what you just mentioned and and i guess sort of unconsciously what a show like lost taught me which is you never know who you have affected who you have touched along the way john locke thought that you know he had reached a dead end that everyone that he had affected had turned him away said he was wrong said he wasn't who he who he was and essentially said you're nothing please leave get out of my life and then you know many days later they come to the island they fight on his behalf and they in fact you know stick up for him in the end and it's it's hokey to say but it's um it's moments like that that helped me get through some really tough mentalities some really tough inner voices there your your inner jacks if you were well who are screaming at you with a beard and a slurred voice that like you have delusions you're nothing you're lonely you're bitter the world would be better without you around I, I i don't think we realize sometimes the effect that we have on the people around us whether it's it's through the the platform that we present here or even just like in our personal interactions buying a hot dog on the street you know, I yeah. don't know. Like, you never know. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, the, our existences are a branching tree that just like blooms beautifully as it will with like, okay, well, you make this decision and you meet this person and then this thing happens to this person because of what you did. It could be a frightening prospect. Hello, butterfly effect, if we're talking about time travel. But there's also this idea of how many relationships you foster in your day to day. And from that perspective, you are never truly alone, even if you were to leave in a manner of speaking. You're never going to leave alone. Who you left with is a bounty full of interactions, a bounty full of characters, a bounty full of relationships. And even though at this moment, John Locke felt like the solo character in his own story, 
that is very much not the fact. John Locke is a main character in Lost, and as we're going to see in season six, he is still woven into that tapestry. And I think rewatching this episode as as gutting and harsh as it was for me to revisit those feelings, uh, I think it really crystallized for me one of those many ways in which the show saved my life. It's a hokey thing to say, but I think the ideas, especially focusing on the, on the relationship aspects, and especially to you to the points that you made about legacy and the people you don't know who you shine up upon without even realizing it, that when that light turns out, that's a, a dark spot in someone's life, and you might not even see it. It's kept my light going for, for years upon years. Uh, and so I guess thank you, John Locke, for helping bring that to light for me and then making me realize how happy I am to be here in, in many ways. Co-signed on, on all of that, uh, chiefly among that, how happy I am that you are here, Mike Bloom. Mm. Um, now let, let's go to the stupid flash forward. <laughs> yeah. Benjamin Linus cleans up the motel room. Um, I'll miss you, John. I really will. Shut up. I, I will give Ben some credit here. I'm not going to give him an MVP point. I've decided against it, but I'm going to give him some credit. So Ben is able to stage it like it's a suicide. He has to haul John Locke's dead weight like up, back up onto the table. I'm assuming he just like put the noose around his neck and pulled it up pulley style, but still like that takes a remarkable amount of strength for him to do that. So I guess good on Ben for hulking out here and pulling John up to get him where he needs to be. I guess. Screw you, Ben. You jerk. Yeah, so, and this is so where he also he, he grabs he grabs the wedding ring, right? So we know this is where he gets things. Uh, you know, this. I mean, again, he didn't lie. Uh, well, actually, he did lie, right? He said that uh, no, he went to go visit John. That's that's what he told Jack. So now we get to see that. Uh, and I actually I really love the shot of Locke's body hanging in the silhouette. I don't know if we need like the stark image of him doing it. I would almost be fine if they just focused on the shadow because I think that's also a really great call forward to what the big twist is, right? That, like, this shadow man is now living inside of Locke. The shadow man. Oh, my God. The shadow man, uh, as we hammer back to Hydra Island, is speaking with Caesar uh, in the office. He says, that symbol once belonged to the Dharma Initiative. Uh, To your point earlier, Mike, of, like, the half-truths, he's going to tell Caesar, I spent more than 100 days on this island. I know a lot. Yeah, you spent mm-hmm. a lot more than 100 <laughs> yeah. days on this island, man. You spent, add, add, like, like a, add a few digits onto that, you yeah, know? Hundreds of years. Uh, uh, he's not sure how he got here. It's a mystery, he says. Indeed it is. It is a mystery. Um, Caesar's going to tell Locke about watching the people disappear out of thin air. Do you have an idea of how that happened? John says, I think I know how I came to be here, but I have to find my friends, which is obviously a thing he wants to do if he wants to find and wipe out the candidates. Um, Everybody is accounted for, except for people who got hurt. Uh, Caesar's going to take Locke to the medical uh, unit where Ben is on a bed. Uh, He says, do you know this person? Yeah, that's the man who killed me. 
that is the dun, end. Dun, dun. That is the end of the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. A complicated episode, a hard episode, mm-hmm. uh, filled with uh, some some great exchanges of dialogue, some tremendous acting, some structural wobbliness, and then I think, yeah, this is hard to watch. Uh, hard, hard to watch. Um, for me, I'm rating it a three point eight. Uh, as we're doing the 4.2 stars, mm-hmm. which like I can imagine the world where that's too high for some, too low for others. I was a little, <laughs> I was a little higher on it uh, before uh, before the podcast, uh, and then in the days leading up to it, uh, moved it a little lower, and then a little tiny bit lower, even in this conversation. But that 3.8 is the highest I think I've probably ever been on the episode. A lot of it has to do mm-hmm. with the nuclear option type stuff. I think this episode works really, really well if you hold it back um, a bit. Like, you don't have to change anything because, like, you got the welcome back to the land of the living twist ending of whatever happened, happened. Uh, And so you don't really need to, like, reorder any of this stuff. But as it stands, it is a little jarring. Uh, It is a little tough. And it's just, it, it is just, like... It's not pleasant, and you've talked about this, Mike, and how that impacts your relationship yep. with an episode of Lost. It's like, did I like? Did I not feel good watching this? Then like, it may go lower. Uh, so. Yeah, we, we 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 talked about this with. Now listen, this is not nearly on the level of Fire Plus Water or Stranger in a Strange Land, but I've talked about that with both. Right, that like. Yes, we try to be as objective as possible, but like at the end of the day, it's our ratings, and I can certainly appreciate an episode and not enjoy it and i think that's what i get here a lot out of jeremy bentham is again it's it's a lot of like personal history has made me have to revisit these things that i'm not particularly happy about but that's not to say that i didn't enjoy a lot of pieces about this episode and what the the end of john locke stands for if it was an unpleasant episode for me to watch i still think that like you said there are some quibbles with it it is far from a perfect episode we talked about how i'm not a fan of the hydra stuff like we even like think about how long we just spent on the john locke death scene and then we literally just yada yada through the last scene yeah like that feels meaningful to me in a way of like that's your big emotional climax and then when you end with just this random like oh yeah and and, you know john locke is back and he's gonna maybe kill ben it just feels like a sort of a tough way to bring that plane down uh on top of like some other things i think you know what actually this actually ends up being uh really comparable i gave meet kevin johnson a 3.3 I'm going to give the same score to the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. Hmm. There are some surprising comparisons, I think, in from my perspective between these episodes. I think from an emotional standpoint, both of these do a really heavy job talking about like a man sort of like at the precipice, right? Like Michael is at the point that Locke finds himself in at that table, right? With with what Michael's trying to do. I think both episodes have a little bit of timeline wonkiness when it comes to fitting things in. We didn't even talk about this, but, you know, watching that Jack and Locke conversation, Locke's going to tell Kate in the season four finale, right? Like, oh, the, you know, Locke told me that the uh, a bunch of bad stuff happened after we left the island. We don't see that conversation happen. So that's a little bit of a hole that gets left there. I think it, they had a tough job trying to now slot this into all the other stuff that was happening and then on top of that yeah i I think that there was a better not only way to structure the episode but also way to uh put the episode into the season that being said it is as high as it is for me 
much higher than, again, A Stranger in a Strange Land or A Fire Plus Water because of Terry O'Quinn's performance, because of the blisteringly fitting way to almost finish this character off. And I think a lot of these one-on-one scenes are just really, really rich. So it's my lowest score so far. I would not be surprised, though, if this is my lowest score for season five. Yeah, I'll tell you uh, that this is my lowest uh, score for season five, uh, with the exception of one other episode that's coming up. And that's more just like, it's fine. Uh, I think maybe two. I think there's two other episodes that I'm slightly lower on. But this is like right in that vicinity uh, for me. So like, a 3.8, I think, uh, being like close to the low mark for the rest of this, for me, like, yeah, we're still cooking with gas here in season five, as far as I'm concerned. It's a 3.7 from the audience. Uh, that score plus yours and mine leaves it a 3.61 overall, uh, which is uh, second to last in the season five rankings as it currently stands. And that's fine. Look, I, I can understand why people. Uh, would look at this list and I'm like, how the hell is this below The Little Prince and This Place's Death? I am totally fine if if you quibble with, you know, how low my ratings is, as I always do. But, you know, hopefully I was able to explain my own perspective and personal association with this a little bit. Lost is an episode that is all about personal associations. So I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum or, as I've coined on another Lost podcast that I guess it on, I'm not going to stink on anyone's kink if they... <laughs> If they like the life and death of Jeremy oh Bentham, uh, I just it's 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 a tough episode for me to watch, but I can certainly I appreciate it. it. All right. Well, before we get into feedback, let's take a quick second to thank our sponsors for this episode of Down the Hatcher. Friends over at Geico. Do you own or rent your home? I'm sure you do, and I bet it can be hard work. We know it's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Um, let's get into the the feedback as well as some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, as the great Ben behind the curtain has noted for us, uh, sourcing dark UFO, uh, Ben informs us that the opening scene of this episode was originally intended to be the opening scene of Because You Left. Oh, uh, God! Ugh. So, so, but I think that that really speaks to, like, the, like, we need to let people know that John Locke is okay panic. Uh, that is right because because let's remember the last scene of season four is john Locke in the coffin i could see a world right. where they think the first scene of season five should be no no don't worry he's fine he's alive on the island right so like and obviously he's not okay even in this scene but like the illusion michael of uh of it being <sighs> okay uh that i feel like they need they feel this need to like bring that in relatively early i i think that um maybe this is a hot take I think that moving the beginning scene of this episode to the start of the season is less ideal than nuclear option, but maybe more ideal than as it is rendered. Uh, I think this being the thing that starts the entire season off is uh, maybe a better choice than it being just like sort of just here at the start of episode seven. And we're just kind of like jarringly thrust into this timeline. It just does not quite work for me structurally. I Mm. think it would work for me better structurally if this was something that from the jump, 
at least like, fine, like don't give us any of that time to be concerned. Like, let's just like now really unsettle us like, or really like settle us in so that we can be deeply unsettled at the end of the season. Like I almost feel like that works better as a, as a season kicker. I don't know. I just, I really like I that love it that way either. so much. Yeah. yeah Cause I, th- I think for me, it's like, again, I really don't, I'm, imagine starting the season with Caesar and Alana, you know, it's just, maybe that's the thing for me. It's like, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to start with, C- I want to start with Pierre it. Chang. I don't want to start it. with Caesar and Alana. I get it. Uh, down service says, how is the show able to so easily trick us into believing John Locke is actually resurrected and not just the smoke monster doing his original shtick? Um, I think that that probably to me, by the way, two sixteen dudes at this point, a um, uh, hundred away from the magic airline number. I know. I hope, but I don't think so. Uh, I think Mike, we never one of the genius things and one of the reasons why I love the monster twist so much is that like one of like the central questions of lost is what is the monster? And we're just mm-hmm. we're just asking the wrong question. Who is the monster is what we should be asking. We never think <sighs> No, when we, is the monster? You know, why is the monster? Like we never we never think to ask it. Uh we never think to ask the right question. Uh, and so on, on that tip, I think like we're taken off guard cause you don't really think of the monster as having its own separate agenda from the island. You think of the mm. monster as being like this terrifying thing that exists on the island and intersects with the island, but it's not like its own freewheeling, like, you know, thinking thing in like the way that like you're thinking of it as like, I don't know, like someone who has a reason to be mad <laughs> no it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a security system that's yeah. what it's been branded so far i also think up to this point we're drinking a little bit of the lot kool-aid and that we do believe in the restorative properties of the island right between Locke himself between rose even between someone like mikhail someone who has seemingly come back from the dead multiple times you look at john Locke get resurrected and you're like okay that could make sense you know, like, oh, yeah, I could very well see. It's not too much of a leap in logic to see a character come back from the dead. Though we'll find out down the line very soon that dead is dead. I think that at the moment, we knew so little about the mythos of the island that we didn't... I, I think we could you could say certified, like, it could make logical sense for the island to fully resurrect a person who was literally dead off-island. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that that tracks. Uh, from Andrew Yu, can you explain why the mention of Eloise prompted Ben to kill Locke, or did Ben intend to kill him all along? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to add here? I feel like we, we touched on this a bit, that I think yeah. he hears the Eloise talking. Only- I, I know what to do now. I don't need yeah, Locke. I, I He's better it- served as a tool. There definitely is something that changes. Like, you see that in Michael Emerson's reaction, but I don't think it's, okay, I have to kill him now. I still do think he walked in there with the express purpose of killing Locke. I just think maybe that reaction was more of a, hmm, okay, mental note. Go check in on Eloise Hawking. Maybe bring a lighter to light those those big-ass candles. But thanks, John. Thanks for the tip. All right, strangle, strangle. Yeah. Um, from Daniel... Uh, Daniel says something I've really tried to wrap my brain around during this rewatch is what exactly was happening between Charles Widmore and Ben Linus ultimately I think they're just being petty as two people who really want to be the leader of the others in the meantime I think they lose sight of the larger goal of protecting the island I don't think Widmore is ever a threat to the Oceanic Six in fact Widmore and Avedon allude to the importance of getting everyone back to the island or else which I assume means he knows more about the war between Jacob and the man in black 
than Ben. Um, that last part I definitely feel is correct. I think like if either of them are a little more like set on the bigger picture, it's certainly with more over Ben. Yeah. I mean, when he talks about there is a war, part of me wonders, could you read that as like, there's a larger war, not just me and Ben? Or could it just be, you know, he wants to bring the Oceanic Six back to that so that like he can tail them and then essentially find the island and then he's able to carry out whatever he wants to. Yeah. Uh, from Riley. It's from Riley. Hey! Riley says, one of my big issues with the Locke and Man in Black twist be- is that I never grieved Locke as a character because the show never let me think he was dead. I think moving this episode to watch it with the nuclear option serves Locke as a character better and also the season as a whole better. Yep. Amen. You are preacher in the choir. We talked about this. But I think I think especially the, you know, just the legacy of Locke and specifically how he has affected Jack. I really like marinating in that mystery a bit more i know that one of the reasons why they wanted to push it up as well is like well we thought the last real piece of the puzzle in 2007 was what happened to Locke? how does he die so i can understand wanting to answer that question but i agree i mean you talked about this before i think watching people move on with Locke's legacy while spending more time sort of like not forgetting about him but getting used to a lockless world really helps the basically the car crash that is this episode then you sort of get like sidewinded blindsided by this idea of like oh yeah john Locke's back but here's how he died yeah uh finally uh there were some questions about what's going on with Locke's body uh in the post show recaps patron discord there was some discussion today before we started recording this from alt jakey uh, who says, now we're officially in the flock era. I got to talk about one of my biggest nitpicks with the show. Am I the only person to think it seems so needlessly confusing for Locke's dead body to exist separately from Smokey? Isn't it such a cleaner explanation if Smokey literally takes John's body? It seems like they did it just so they could have the moment where Ben is thrown in dead Locke's face. Um, so I think that this like kind of prompted a question of like, how does the smoke monster imitate like the likenesses of people. And I guess I never really even considered that there was this read that he's like literally physically using their bodies. uh, Yeah. I never, I I never thought about like the meat bag idea. Cause I think about like Yemi, for instance, right? Yemi is that charred up corpse outside of the beach craft, but smoke monster can also be Yemi. So I don't think he's like going inside that skeleton and pretending to be him. I more so thought it was like, Hey, if you're dead, the smoke monster can pretend to be you rather than he's literally going to jump inside your body right. and move it around like a puppet. Right. That has always been my read of it as well, is that like he is, uh, he is, he is a, uh, a shapeshifter that the smoke is, you know, shapeshifting into these different forms that in the way that like he scans people to take their memories and can do some of like the dreamscape type stuff that we've seen before that we've assigned to the smoke monster that the more uh, detail oriented um, uh, imitation of a character for prolonged periods of time, whether it's Yemi or Christian Shepard or now John Locke is uh boils down to there being a body that it can scan effectively like we've seen it like it scanned echo and was able to like uh you know uh operate within echo's dreams to a certain extent and do certain things with echo uh in that way um but it you know had access to yemi's body and so 
um, the monster can take on the form of Yemi. And I think when when you when you think about the monster taking on the likeness of a character, there does seem to be some degree to which like he's taking on character traits as well. Like I feel mm-hmm. like you know he's going to say like he knows what John Locke was thinking when he died. That indicates that he is able to like full body scan, mind and spirit scan Locke as a character. Um, this goes back to we barely talked about this, but when John Locke uh, or when John Loki eats the mango on the beach, and he says, "I think this is the best mango I've ever eaten." Um, that uh, I, I think like for for me like uh, this this strikes me as like is this the first time that the smoke monster has ever eaten? Um, I don't, I don't look at it that way. There's going to be, there's going to be the moment where, uh, in the incident where Ben, uh, where Ben, where Jacob offers the man in black some fish and the man in black, like, you know, kind of just like waves it off, but not in like a, like how insulting, uh, but more like, no, I'm good. You know, Um, not like a, how, you know, I cannot eat, but I think like, I think like he can do it. I don't think he like has any joy in it. I don't think he enjoys it at all. I don't think that like he tastes things. Um, But when he's saying this, the best mango I've ever eaten, I feel like because he has adopted the likeness of John Locke uh, physically and has access to like what it meant for John Locke to be here, right? Like what things mm-hmm. felt like here when John Locke was alive. I feel like he's like tasting that mango with the appreciation of John Locke. And so there's almost like something like sarcastic and really mean about when he says, this is the best mango I've ever eaten. Like, I think that like, he's like laughing at John Locke. Uh, Either is, is that how or he's doing this, like uh, this method, this Meisner technique of like, now how would John Locke feel about eating a mango? Mm-hmm. And he just like, he hasn't found the role quite yet. He's still getting adjusted to it of like, ah, oh, this is the best mango i've ever had like no stupid john Locke wouldn't say that he'd be much cooler than that stupid monster you gotta be more like john Locke. john Locke wouldn't salivate over a mango he'd do something else he'd want to eat meat not mangoes yeah yeah he'd rather eat fruit uh so i feel like i i i have never interpreted as like Christian Shepard's body is missing, and the reason Christian Shepard's body is missing is because the smoke monster has like fueled his smoky tendrils into Christian's body and yeah, is wandering I, I, around. Because other than that, there there'd be some smell issues after a while, right? Like Locke would walk into the cabin and he'd stink like just an entire funeral, yeah, funeral home. Uh, so yeah, there's just no world in which that is a a thing for for me. So that that's my take. Uh, I think that he's just scanning bodies. That's it. Um, okay, MVP, LVP. You've got three MVPs. I've got two. I've got three LVPs. You've got two. Do we want to just like go through? Like it's a, a, it's almost a full five point John Locke landslide here. Yes. Uh, so you gave both of your points to Locke. I gave two. I didn't want to do a clean sweep because I wanted to give him a little. I mean, he does get tricked, so I didn't want to give him an LVP, but I wanted to give him, you know, like a little bit of a slap on the wrist, like John Locke. How could you? I'm going to give a po- my final point to the smoke monster here because he does have a, a nice coming out party, coming out party mm-hmm. as John Locke yes. here. Uh, you know, he is able to sort of like show his leadership, really be the cock of the walk, trying to lead everyone in the first steps of this long con. And it starts working. So the first of many points for John Loki, I'm assuming, but it's going to be four points for Locke overall 
in his final episode, one point for Smokey. Uh, which is going to make John Locke the uh, current leader of the season five MVPs with uh, with some room to spare right now. Eight overall for John Locke, uh, which I, I believe is his number four. Uh, I think his number is four. Uh, but that's, yeah, his number is four in the candidate list. But hey, with four points in his final episode so how about that uh but yeah eight, and this he's the, he's the leader in the clubhouse I'll, I'll be intrigued to see who catches up to him you know because obviously like Locke can't go down anymore in season five i think the person who actually might catch him is the person who was right behind him which is the smoke monster with three points you know i think like is sawyer gonna pull it off will juliet get in there or is Smokey gonna do his thing i think these are these are the three that i'm looking at as the the likeliest contenders if not john Locke being able to hang on to to the top spot um lvps I got to take a point away from Benjamin Linus. Uh, he's so he's so good uh, and at being bad. Yeah, he's so good at being bad. Uh, but God, it's just disgusting. It's just it it just it wrecks me, and I I need to penalize him here. I, I have no, no choice. I was debating giving him an MVP point, but like Ethan. I think I'm okay with it. We got some pushback for, I do not think I could give Ben an MVP point for like, good on you for convincing Locke to step down before you strangled him. You know, like I I think that's maybe a bridge too far for me personally. So I'm going to give him another LVP point as well, because again, the most malicious thing he's ever done in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, It's just disgusting. Um, Then I, uh, I could have given one to Abaddon. He dies. That's sort of classic, but I've already violated that. Uh, So I'm not going to, I'm just going to give one to Caesar and one to Alana. <laughs> just for existing. Well, we talked about them at the start of the episode. I don't need to relitigate it any further than that. Well, you can plus, go back uh, and listen to that conversation, and I think it'll spell out relatively clearly why. Uh, and Caesar Alana is, is an AOJ, right? And like she starts getting it under the wing of the smoke monster without realizing it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll give, listen, it's not an episode with Charles Winmore in it if I'm not giving him an LVP point. Because, uh, like, dude, you let Abaddon die on your watch, you know? Like, you allowed Benjamin Linus to to get the win here. Uh, and I guess he does want the Oceanic Six to go back, but I do think he ends up losing this battle a bit, and that L- Benjamin Linus does live, and he's the one aboard that Ajira Air Flight. Yeah. Uh, all right, fair enough. Uh, ben, ben Linus is going to be our LVP for the time being. Uh, Widmore is still in the hunt. Uh, but it is uh, Big Ben and Locke uh, on either end of this spectrum for season five so far. And I think that that is very fair. Yeah, I, I think so. And I'll be intrigued to see, you know, we're going to take a brief break from this next week. But when we start getting into the dual storylines of 1977 and 2007, I'll be intrigued to see how those two end up doing, you know, because they're going to be very much in cahoots leading into the season five finale. And so we'll see, like, do we give you know john loki points for tricking ben do we give ben lvp points for getting tricked by john loki that remains to be seen yeah um all right next week le fleur i'm so excited yeah, me too. This, this is this is sort of like i wouldn't say the polar opposite in tone but i think like le fleur comparatively obviously i think anything a funeral would be a very light episode compared to the life and death of jeremy bentham but like le fleur is such a tone shift you know, we finally get the time travel shenanigans to stop, and we finally hunker down in the 70s, and man, 
What a freaking good Sawyer episode. What a good Sawyer episode. I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, LaFleur is a great episode. Uh, it it played really well for me on the rewatch. We're getting into James and Juliet territory. That's going to be really nice. Uh, yeah, get your yellow flowers out. I know it. All right, so LaFleur coming next. Make sure you get that feedback in for us by June 29th. Send it in down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also tweet at us at Round Howard at a Mike Bloom type, or you can talk to us in the Post Show Recaps Patron Discord if you are a member of the Post Show Recaps Patreon uh, at that Discord level. Patreon.com slash Post Show Recaps among the reasons to sign up. You get down the hatch a couple days early. Uh, so if that's enticing to you, we'd love to have you along for the ride. Support your favorite podcast. We know it's us. And we're very <laughs> humble about it, too. Yeah, listen, uh, uh, a couple other things, a couple of plugs. Uh, Josh and I are going to be doing some stuff together on reality TV wrap-ups this coming weekend. Uh, some I, I want to save it, actually, uh, to the official announcement until they actually debut. I want it to be a bit of a, su- a surprise, maybe. So be sure to check that stuff out. But I also wanted to put out there... Uh, this was an incredibly heavy episode and an incredibly heavy podcast. Uh, I, I, you know, I do apologize if people feel like I maybe made it too much about myself and my journey. Not but at all. I mean, Lost is a show that that hits you in different points in your life, and this episode hit me in a very different way, considering my own journey with mental health. And just to echo what I said before, Mister Echo, very happy to be where I am right now in so many ways from a wellness perspective, from a podcast perspective, talking with you and the, the wretch of the hatchlings, I wouldn't have it any other way. And uh, I'm so happy to be able to move forward to talk about LaFleur and everything moving on. And I, I want to thank you all for, for listening and allowing us both Josh and I to be as open as we're allowed to be with our lives on the course of this podcast. It's it's Yo, an incredibly it's in- revealing, motivating thing. Yeah, it's also very scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can be very scary to uh to be this vulnerable, to be as vulnerable as you were today, Mike, uh in in this forum. And I, I think uh a big piece of why uh, I have felt comfortable doing that in the past, and I think you feel comfortable doing it uh, and and felt comfortable doing it today is because we do have such a great supportive community of people who Absolutely. just like who who listen and talk and like the feedback loop is really, really great around this podcast. It's a really incredible community here uh, with with the hatchling. So uh, grateful for all of that. Tastier than a mango. Uh, man, tastiest mango I've ever had. Uh, all right. Next week. LaFleur. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye-bye. Perfect timing. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.